Hello, and welcome to Mormons, Mystics, and Yuans. I'm Gabe, and Bill and I are here, and I reached out to Bill Real, um, I think last week or so, and yeah, Bill, I just wanted to have a discussion because I listened to your podcast with Kara recently, and you were talking about some of the things that we've, Elder and I have been covered, covering on my podcast, and thought it'd be interesting to talk about some of them and curious as to where you're at in some of these things and how yeah. much your kind of cosmology, my cosmology and interpretation of Mormonism's origins overlap. Yeah, I love it. Um, you know, Mormonism is this really interesting thing that, you know, we spent time in, I certainly spent a ton of time in and, and really invested myself and getting the other side of it deconstructing the things that I have and ending up in a place where I believe what I do, which is sort of separate from Mormonism. I really find the other side of life, these things that we're going to kind of talk about today uh, are things that I've, some of them I've covered in depth, either in episodes or things I've read about, things I've said on podcasts. It, it's a fun space to play in. And um, these were things I never would have even considered looking into on, on the inside of Mormonism. And so I'm really thrilled to be a guest here and, to have a conversation with you. I'll let you kind of lead because there's a lot of things here that I may have very little to say. And there's a few mm -hmm. here that I think I'll have something uh, to add to, to contextually to what you're, what you're saying, but I'm super excited for the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for um, meeting with me. Um, there are a few things that I was thinking about recently. I was curious your thoughts on, I've been listening to a bit of uh, midnight Mormons and I haven't watched all of like the back and forth. Um, and it's really so I want to get your thoughts on, it seems like there's sort of this makings for a schism within the church and then also somewhat within like the post-Mormon community as well. Like within the church, it seems like there are these two extremes forming one, which is this narrative of the church has gone astray and you know, getting back to the fundamentals. Sometimes that means like polygamy and the esoteric weird occult stuff. And sometimes that means not uh, any of that stuff, uh, which is kind of an interesting split within that side. And then there's the more progressive side where, um, yeah, it's this more woke, you know, those more fundamental people are accusing the church of becoming more woke and uh, progressive. And it seems like the, leaders of the church are in this really tight spot where they can't quite appease either side. And then within the post-Mormon, um, it's interesting. I've recently joined some of the, um, you know, Mormon stories group and the ex-Mormon group. And there's a whole bunch of people pretty staunchly atheist and meaning like no spirituality and get very triggered by any thought of spirituality. Mm. And then it seems like there's more of a shift of people that are, shifting into spiritually what spirituality whether it's psychedelics um or buddhist eastern philosophy and those those don't always i mean there's a unifying factor that everybody's post-mormon um, but there seems to be a bit of a divide there so i want to get your thoughts on yeah i think mormonism is in a tough spot because every one of its foundational truth claims claims runs up against a historical narrative context in in documentary uh, documented uh, history that that really 
poses problems. The, the critic really has a better explanation at almost every one of those. And so Mormonism, too, didn't leave itself a lot of room in its early history to uh, allow kind of a fluffier way of navigating it. It was, it was very rigid. Like, these are, these are our truth claims. This is how things go. This is, uh, this is what has to be. These are the events that occurred. This is the theology. God's eternal and consistent. And so Mormonism is in this tough spot where it has to both appease its conservatives who have been taught a narrative, uh, and they need that narrative to hold in place. And then they also need to uh, change their narrative to suit folks, especially the younger generation who have access to the internet and know how to do searches on the web and find answers to questions immediately. And they can't afford Mormonism to sound and look ridiculous to that younger generation. So you're seeing Mormonism, uh, I think, do this thing where it, there's almost three Mormonisms going on, right? There's the 55 and up crowd, which is kind of being left to believe it's old Mormonism. The younger, maybe 30 to 40 crowd kind of senses things are changing, and it's kind of having to keep its feet in both sides. And then the younger generation is being raised with a very different Mormonism that doesn't make near the claims. I was just listening to a podcast uh, two or three days ago with Thomas Wayman being uh, interviewed by Rick Bennett on the Gospel Tangents podcast. And Thomas Wayman had uh, created his own uh, Bible translation, and he and he's selling it as a Bible translation friendly to Latter-day Saints. And he goes on the podcast with Rick Bennett, and he is just running the King James Version into the ground. Well, I don't know about you. I don't know. You, you're a little younger than me, I think. I'm 44 years old. I was raised in Mormonism, I joined at 17, but my young adulthood, raised in a Mormonism that said the King James Version is the very best of all. It's it's the one that all English users should be using. It's the closest thing we have to, and you know why they do it? Because all of the mistakes and things they made tie into the King James Bible, and so it gives them a little more ability to kind of not have to deal with it. But every issue, whether it's the King James Version, whether it's the Book of Abraham, Book of Moses, and so it's going to be interesting to watch. I know it's a long answer, but it's going to be interesting to watch Mormonism over the next 20, 30, 40 years because it has to decide what it wants to be. It either has to be go back to sort of its rigidity, which it doesn't seem to indicate that's what it's going to do, but go back to its rigidity and just let a few members stay around. Or it becomes really liberal to some degree because it has to let go of all these truth claims. And I think then it still ends up with not too many people around. But uh, at least it's got a good cash flow. Mm -hmm. And it's been interesting to see, like, I think the, there are a lot of, and as I've gotten into spirituality post-Mormonism, there are a lot of underlying kind of principles of Mormonism that I've recontextualized and see, I think, where he was going. Um, and it, kind of around this eternal progression, like God's an embryo, uh, aspect. Um, and it's interesting because I think that the most salient and interesting and meaningful aspects of Mormonism, mm. you know, eternal marriage, divine potential, all of those come from Joseph Smith's very weird, esoteric, original doctrines. And nothing's really been added on since then. And the things that Brigham Young tried to add on and, you know, spin off Adam, God and blood atonement, all those things, you know, polygamy, 
you know, expansion of polygamy, um, all of those they've walked back. And so they're still holding on to like as much, you know, what makes them unique are those things from early Mormonism, but they've moved so far away from like the folk magic, mystical core of it that, yeah, they're trying to straddle both sides of something that I think is becoming increasingly difficult. Um, so, yeah, and I'll just add if Mormonism could have just, if there was a religion just created with the best parts of Mormonism, um, I, I think you'd have a pretty fantastic religion. It really comes down to the, the high demand religion aspects of manipulating people and shaming people and having a history that just doesn't match the historical narrative that, that really it runs into its problems. And, um, as we're going to kind of go into some of these ideas today, I mean, there certainly are facets of that religion that uh, come from a much healthier place. Um, the idea that the Holy Ghost within you, right? Like you get mm -hmm. answers for yourself. And then somewhere along the way, we kind of corrupt it and say, well, though, if those answers don't match what the leaders say, then now you've you got the wrong revelation. But uh, giving people the empowerment, because maybe to start off this way, if you go back in time 200,000 years ago, there really isn't this idea of like having a guru. You had these small tribes and perhaps some of the tribes or maybe even all of them had shamans, right? And the shaman would help you have a mystical experience, but his goal was to let you have your own experience and to let you define it. Uh, and somewhere along the way, somebody decided that their experience needed to be the experience for everyone. And then all of a sudden you've got people imposing their authoritative voices. But Mormonism has plenty of room for folks to uh, have a voice with inside them, their own intuition, their own inner authority, decide uh, what the world is and who they want to be and how they want to show up with some guiding principles and, and constructs around them, but with the freedom to make their own decisions. Have you, have you read uh, The Immortality Key by Brian? I, uh, Mara Gasu or something like that, right? Yeah, I've, I've, I've read the book and I also listened to the interview that he and Graham Hancock had with Joe Rogan. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that was fascinating. Yeah. Crazy. And, yeah. and I think Mormonism is, well, have you also read either Cody Nakoni's book, the psychedelic history of Mormonism, magic and drugs, or his paper with, um, Beckstead and Blankenable on the psychedelic, uh, the entheogenic hypothesis. Yeah, I haven't read that, but I did listen to uh, Bryce Blankenagel and his presentation at a Sunstone conference. They okay. gave me their pamphlet. I did peruse through it. I'm aware of some of the data points. Um, I don't remember what the name is, but there's a early guy in Mormonism. He's among the leaders in some form, and I think he's got a son that's also playing out in church membership. But he has this crazy experience where he's kind of thrown around the house and uh, Joseph Smith goes and gets somebody, goes, goes and like tells the neighborhood, like, hey, this guy's having some weird experience. Come come check it out. And all of a sudden, people show up, and that part of the experience is over, but there's kind of the aftermath. And the only way I can explain it, because I don't believe anybody was picked up and thrown around a house, mm -hmm. the only way I can explain it is that they took some sort of medicine, conscious-altering tool, and had some sort of psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I I think what... I like about both of those or where I think Mormonism is fits into the immortality key is that, and they, they mentioned this in the paper. Um, so they wrote a paper, I think in 2019 maybe and published it in um, some psychedelic 
some journal on psychedelic studies. And one of the things they mentioned is that Mormonism, so their hypothesis is that psychedelics or entheogens formed a crucial part of the origins of Mormonism. And they mentioned that Mormonism, you know, if true, that this is sort of a case study for psychedelics or altered states of consciousness and religion in general, which I think is the more you look into it really fascinating. And I mean, it's not every day that you have a religion that was formed like 200 years ago that you can dive in and have these records and start to piece together what exactly happened. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if you saw, but yeah, there was a symposium on basically psychedelic studies and Mormonism, uh, just last month and yeah, Bryce Blankenagel, Cody Nakoni and Alex Criddle, um, all presented on it. So there's more and more research on this area and yeah. And that's where, um, my, our podcast, so, uh, focuses on is not only just this idea that psychedelics or entheogens were a core part of the origins of Mormonism, but extending, extending that focus, not just on psychedelics, but just on the, the broader context of mystical states or altered states of consciousness and how the evidence is showing that it actually doesn't matter what modality you get there through that the, the psychedelic mystical experience is the same as the religious mystical experience and meditation, breathwork, fasting, um, or these spontaneous, uh, spiritual awakenings or Kundalini awakenings are all diff different modalities, different paths up to a certain mountain peak that gives a specific experience, or at least an experience that has a lot of commonalities across time and history and what the how does Mormonism fit into that? And then what, what's the implication of that philosophically? Like, why is there this experience that has been happening for as long as we, um, you know, know of in history and yeah, what does it speak to us? You know, what does it say about reality? And then how does Mormonism, how can you contextualize Mormonism within that? Um, I listened to you, you're an RFMs episode on automatic writing, uh, which I found really fascinating. I was familiar with some of this stuff. Um, I had kind of, I've read some channeled works, which would fall under that category. And I think the, this broader view of reality and specifically idealism or the idea that the universe is mental, like the, the substrate of the universe is consciousness rather than matter. Um, and that we're all part of this um, consciousness has the key to explaining those things because you guys took it really far and and i really like your approach where you said like hey we can't explain this but we can at least say that the book of mormon is not unique in the sense that all these other works have similarly inexplicable attributes um, that meet a lot of these same claims as the book of mormon um, but have conflicting truth claims. And then I think that's where like Brian Hales, you played a quote where he said, okay, yeah, there's, there's similarities, but nobody's really given an explanation for how this works. Um, and I think that's, that's, if you look into philosophy and the philosophical implications of quantum physics and 
Carl Jung's idea of like universal unconscious. Mm. Yeah, there actually are explanations. And as weird as it sounds, um, if you kind of suspend your disbelief and are open to questioning everything, uh, you can come out on the other side with some real answers that that make more sense than what we've done so far. Yeah, so not only are there other examples of automatic writing that would be in the same neighborhood as the Book of Mormon, they're actually better. They're longer, they're more coherent, they're better language. It's whoever the author is, whether it's the person inside their head, knowingly or unknowingly, or whether it's some outside force, the story being told comes off much more masterfully in other other works. I'm thinking of like the Urantia text, which I downloaded on Audible and listened to a couple of hours worth. And was quite impressed with um, the language of it. Again, the ability to discern whether something's true or not in that realm, I, I have no clue. But going back to just for a moment, The Immortality Key, just so listeners know, um, that book essentially posits that uh, early Christianity was using conscious altering tools, psychedelics, and you can find uh, echoes of evidence, kind of uh, engravings on early Christian uh, uh, pottery Uh, things that would have been part of like rituals that show it seems like somebody's mixing up things or somebody's taking some sort of substance. And then when you look at the early Mormonism, um, I think the mystical experiences being had, like the Kirtland Temple being on fire and uh, people seeing things, the story I said about the guy being thrown around the room, the best explanation I have is that they were taking something that was altering their consciousness. The the only flaw, and again, as you point out, the research is getting better and better with uh, Blankenagel and those guys. Um, but th- we don't really, we don't really have uh, strong enough evidence to show that these early members were actually taking this stuff. But it does seem like, hey, it's in the area. Um, we know Joseph Smith and is out, you know, practicing alchemy and working with Lumen Walters and uh, all of the early treasure diggers. And um, there's all this um, stuff going on that would be easily explained by conscious altering tools other than we just don't have this strong, you know, nail in the coffin of of them actually taking it. But it's, it's a fun space to play in. And as we're having this conversation today and talking about the various things, we've started to hint at some of them. I'm on the fence about a lot of this, but I think it's interesting to talk about. And I think some of this will turn out to be more true than we give it credit for. And I think some of it will turn out to be sort of pseudoscience. And I'm I'm just intrigued to kind of have the conversation and, and hope folks that will at least open up their mind and join with us as we kind of dive into this territory. Yeah. So I, you know, maybe I agree. There's not, you know, I've read Cody to Cody's book. I've read, um, the paper by Beckstead, like Nagel, and uh, Nakoni, and I think Winkleman. Um, and I think there, it, a lot of the evidence is circumstantial, uh, but I think there's a few things that, even without specific, um, yeah, hard evidence, that it becomes increasingly difficult to explain it another way. So I, I'm going to read. So I, wrote a fairly long piece kind of a integrating all these topics um and it's episode two of our podcast i've got a Substack um for it where, where it's just got that piece so far um, but i'll read a part where i think is kind of the 
biggest connection or um, evidence for it. And then we can kind of circle back. But um, so yeah, uh, I wrote, however, the psychedelic history of Mormonism, magic and drugs by Cody Nakoni makes a well-researched case for psychedelics and altered states of conscious playing a major role in the founding of Mormonism, particularly as related to group mystical experiences like the Kirtland Temple dedication. Additionally, along with early Mormonism and the magic worldview by D. Michael Quinn, it documents the extensive connections the Smith family had with esoteric traditions like Freemasonry and Kabbalah and shows that many concepts and themes that seem unique to Mormonism have been associated with these traditions throughout history. These include records written in Egyptian, connections between Native Americans and Israel, revelatory scribe relationships that end in a request of wife swapping, allegedly from angelic direction, baptism for the dead, Elohim and a council of the gods, and different degrees of heaven, among others. Finally, the immortality key, the secret history of the religion with no name by Brian Murrell Rescue uh, presents evidence for the role that psychedelics had throughout thousands of years as a societal sacrament, showing up for 2000 years in the Eleusinian mysteries, being integral to the Dionysian rites, morphing into the Eucharist, and then being suppressed by the Catholic Church and replaced with the placebo during their purge of the women who safeguarded these herbal sacraments by using the label of witchcraft and attributing the experiences to the devil. This was the religion that Joseph Smith was attempting to restore. The greatest evidence of this lies in the similarities between the Eleusinian mysteries and the temple endowment that Joseph Smith created in Nauvoo, as well as his teachings on attaining godhood. The Eleusinian mysteries were a ceremony that involved oaths of secrecy on penalty of death, the viewing of a play, a psychedelic drink called the Kaikion, and an experience that was said to confer immortality like a god. It was attended by the great philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, and Marcus Aurelius, and was mentioned in an LDS periodical uh, at the time of Joseph Smith. The 1798 U.S. Encyclopedia of Britannica noted that these mysteries were presented as a drama with, quote, one principal actor in this solemn exhibition reciting everything that, according to the ritual, was to be communicated to the novices concerning the origin of the universe, end quote. In 1816, another publication observed, so these are all things that Joseph Smith could have had access to or were known at the time. Um, another publication observed that they, quote, displayed the lapse of the soul from original purity into a state of darkness, confusion, and ignorance. They affected to teach the initiated how they might emerge from this state, how they might recover what had been lost, how they might pass from the gloom of error into the splendid brightness of regained paradise, uh, end quote. The Testament of Twelve Patriarchs, which was reprinted in Ohio in 1827 and referred to in the Encyclopedia Britannica as the initiatory ceremonies of the Eleusinian Mysteries stated, quote, the first of them anointed me with holy oil and gave me the scepter of judgment. The second washed me with clean water and fed me with bread and wine and clothed me with a glorious robe down to the ground. The third put on me a silken garment. The fourth girded me with a girdle like to purple and the third shall have a new name, end quote. D. Man, that sounds that sounds really close to Mormonism's <laughs> endowment, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, D. Michael Quinn summarized. I was just going to say, just before mm -hmm. you say it, just to say that um, now that we're on this end, 2023, we can now look at Mormonism through a different lens, which is to the 20,000 foot view and see all the things that Joseph and the early uh, church leaders implemented as part of the theology and the history and all that stuff. And it becomes crystal clear that Joseph is borrowing um, Terrell Givens calls him an eclectic aggregator. Um, he, he uses the word bricolage in terms of how Joseph put all this together um, to recognize that, and, and as you continue on, 
that there are tons of sources contemporary to Joseph Smith by which he gets his theology, three kingdoms, word of wisdom, uh, the things you're just mentioning here in terms of the endowment, um, using certain things from masonry to kind of place that endowment in kind of a code of secrecy, um, plural marriage, you, you know, there's this idea that maybe they took from some of those ideas from the Cochranites. Soon as you allow Joseph Smith not to be an originator of new ideas, but to be borrowing from his milieu, um, you start to see it everywhere, as you're pointing out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we'll get to this in a second. I think there's, I mean, I read all of, have you read D. Michael Quinn's book on uh, Magic Worldview? Yeah, it's a few times. Yeah, I mean, it's long and it's incredible. Yeah. But it's also very fascinating that it has no the whole aspect of the fact that folk magic or cultism, esoteric traditions center around altered states of consciousness and psychedelics is missing from it. So, I mean, as powerful as it is, there's a whole other side of the story that he kind of had a blind spot to. And I think that's where research is going now. I don't know if you know who Alex Criddle is, but he's mm -hmm. you know professional Mormon historian and psychedelic researcher um, and very familiar with occultism and folk magic. Um, and so that's, what's exciting. I think about research, Mormon research is it's now integration. I mean, I think Joseph Smith, I mean, he integrated a lot of different esoteric traditions, which the commonality between all of those are this exploration of consciousness. And that's the reason I, I would say why Kabbalah and Gnosticism and Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry all have so many common aspects is because they didn't have to come from another place in time and space. I mean, there's a mystical experience where you can have and gives these fundamental truths, regardless of what culture you're in. Um, so I think he borrowed a lot of that stuff, but then I think there's pretty good evidence with the book of Mormon and just how much his theophanies overlap with this, you know, defined by research mystical state that I think, it's really hard to say that he wasn't experiencing these things. And so I think it's a combination of both of those borrowing and adaptation and also experiencing his own things. And I think you saw, see this in the fact that, I mean, Mormon is, Mormonism's cosmology was rapidly changing at the very end. I mean, it was 1844, right before he died, when we've got King Follett discourse. And he's saying in that, he says, you know, I could use other sources, but you're going to say heresy, heresy if I... Um, use them. So I'll use the Bible. I mean, he's integrating all these different things and he's talking about, you know, we just have one God of many gods. And I mean, this is part of the reason why everybody was upset is because they signed up for a pretty traditional Christianity that the Book of Mormon um, presented. And then they signed up for a ride that they didn't realize where was going, where it was going. And so it's, it's interesting to wonder where it would have gone if he could have kept going. Um, so just one more um, paragraph. D. Michael Quinn summarized the connections in the following by explaining that in 1837, the Eleusinian mysteries were commented on in a publication from church headquarters. And this is before Joseph Smith died. The, uh, and this is his quote, the, the Latter-day Saints messenger and advocate comments about the Eleusinian mysteries, which the American edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica and other sources in 1837 describe as being revealed by God from the beginning of the world and passed on to worthy initiates through washings and anointings, a new name and garment, vows of non-disclosure, 
lesser and greater rituals, presentation through drama, an oath of chastity, designation as prophets, priests, and kings, emphasis on attaining godhood, and a heavenly ascent past various guards to whom departed spirits must give magical passwords. Um, and so, I mean, the connection between Mormonism and the endowment and Freemasonry is much easier to understand and latch onto. But I think the downside of that is this is a much more powerful and interesting connection, especially since the Eleusinian Mysteries, which were these rites that went on for 2000 years, um, are very, very likely involving psychedelics. And there's this drink and they find ergot, which is psychedelic in these mm -hmm. chalices. And additionally in the, um, do you know much about the Zionitic brethren in mm -hmm. Ephrata? I've heard so, of them, but no, I don't know much about them. So in Ephrata, there was an Ephrata cloister, um, in, in the 1700s, there was a group of people within this cloister. And these were, I think, largely Rosicrucianism, uh, Ros Rosicrucians, which is another, again, esoteric or kind of hidden occult form of Christianity. This in the 1700s, they lived for, you know, Peter Whitmer lived four miles away from this group. Um, and this smaller order within the effort of cloister were called the Zionitic uh, Brethren. And they had a basically a temple that they made that they called Zion. They claimed the priesthood of Melchizedek. They had an initiation that they fasted for 40 days and they drank a, an elixir called uh, that they claimed was the Materia Prima. That was the elixir that God gave man to make them immortal. And so they were doing psychedelics. They had kind of this initiation endowment ceremony in the 1700s. They were also doing baptisms for the dead. Um, and it's easy to think, oh, the Joseph Smith just copied these things. But again, you, you also have to account for like, why are all these separate groups doing kind of a similar thing, uh, trying to, and I, and I think the tie is these altered states of consciousness. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting that apologists want to come in and try to make connections to like, look, he got it right. It, it, and as you're pointing out, and as I would agree, there's something else happening. When I did ayahuasca, my second night, uh, the experience started off with me in some big cave. And in the cave were these life forms, and there was two of them, and they had two legs and two arms, but they were tall, and they, they weren't human, and they weren't even their color and they just, they weren't human at all. And I couldn't get their attention. They were ignoring me. Uh, and again, I don't know if it's real or not. My hunch is my brain tells me that as a skeptic, that that's not real. My brain created the entire thing. And there were aspects of that night from after that moment where I exit the cave and now I go off into other places in my head where I learned ideas that weren't in my head to begin with. I learned new thoughts. Things were, given to me, because often we are building upon the ideas that someone else gave us. Someone else teaches us in a classroom and we have a new concept in our head, but it really wasn't new. Someone else put it there. Mm -hmm. But there are moments in our human life where new ideas come into our head and they're at these unique times. There, There's kind of these kinds of circumstances where these things sort of happen. And conscious altering tools have been one of those where I've been able to access something that wasn't there to begin with. Um, I, I find 
it interesting that whether we're talking Mormonism, whether we're talking early Christianity, whether we're talking these other traditions, that, you know, if somebody is swimming, for instance, if we take the early Christians, if somebody is swimming in this idea of Christ as the Messiah and he's risen, and you take some sort of, uh, you participate in some sort of ritual, you take some sort of conscious altering tool, inevitably, some of those people are going to see the risen Christ. Mm -hmm. In the same way that I saw two alien life forms in a cave. Um, when you go on these kinds of journeys inside your head by altering your consciousness to the degree that you're taking a hero dose of something, um, you're going to see things and experience things that don't make sense to your reality. And whatever your, whatever your uh, traumas are, whatever your concerns are about what's going on in your life at the moment, whatever loss you've experienced around certain people you love, inevitably those experiences, I was always told the medicine is the teacher. Those experiences are going to connect you with whatever it is that's going on in the subconscious that you, that needs addressed. And hence, mm -hmm. why wouldn't early Christians devoted to the Christ not experience the risen Christ when they alter their consciousness? Mm -hmm. Um, that makes me think of uh, Michael Pollan's uh, How to Change Your Mind. Yeah, I've beautiful the, book. The book and the Netflix series. Um, Even better. And yeah, there's the the Catholic who, you know, elderly Catholic lady who did it for cancer and the Virgin Mary came to her and I saw a post over on the Mormon subreddit, um, which is not a faithful subreddit, but right. um, somebody was like puzzling over the fact that like all the Catholics see the Virgin Mary and... The Buddhists see this, you know, Buddha and Christians see this. Um, and, and Mormons see the three yeah. Nephites all the time. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily plan on going in this direction, but are you familiar at all with the, this term concept, high strangeness? Mm -mm. So it's just this, um, I don't know much about it, but it's the phenomenon of alien abductions, Loch Ness Monster, Sasquatch. Mm whatever. And I've always dismissed all of that stuff. But as I have explored the, you know, listening to Lex Friedman and Sam Harris and these neuroscientists and uh, psychologists talk about how we construct, you know, how our consciousness, how we construct a reality. Um, there's cubism, which is this interpretation of quantum mechanics based on Bayesian inferences, uh, Bayesian statistics, which I don't know much of, about, but essentially this idea is that we, you know, we think that we're looking at a tree across the uh, field from us that we're seeing something out there. But really, if you break it down and explore consciousness, you, you realize you're actually just experiencing your interpretation of electrical signals that have resulted from light hitting your retina and you're experiencing, I mean, you construct a reality, you have this VR headset, you know, a snake's going to interpret it a completely different way. Um, and the way we experience reality is, I was listening to a recent, I forget who Sam Harris was uh, interviewing, but it's basically saying the way we construct reality is we experience sensory input and then using Bayesian statistics, essentially, it's a, a product of how likely our experience has been that this set of input matches, you know, a tree. 
and then how likely we think it is in our experience that we've encountered trees and then that product of that kind of allows your brain to set up okay this must be what i'm seeing it's basically creating the experience um in a quick and dirty way rather than rendering you know it's not like you're actually seeing an objective reality yeah. you're throwing up a reality and then your brain does this error checking and then if the input changes and your brain's like okay that really doesn't match and so it's been interesting to read some papers and theories on yeah alien abductions Loch Ness Sasquatch and realizing oh these all fall within this broader category of phenomenon where for whatever reason and it's often not psychedelics um we're experiencing some sort of input some experience of consciousness that doesn't match what we've ever experienced before in our life and i think this you know applies to these mystical experiences and our brain doesn't have anything to match it to really um and so it uses the best that it can and it uses these archetypes or these beliefs and that's the tricky aspect of these altered states of consciousness is that depending on how much your brain is still holding on to its constructs it's going to come within that language that you know and if you don't have an awareness of how these things work and that other people experience them um and depending on your predispositions your traumas your mental psychological state you get in you can go down these very psychopathological routes and interpretations of it where you think you're god you think you're a prophet i mean i think you look at lori vallow and chad daybell you know i followed that a bit and i realized like oh my gosh these people i believe they were experiencing what they said they were experiencing and i i doesn't seem like psychedelics were involved i mean some people depending on their early experiences in life um, or their experiences in life are more predisposed to these uh altered states of consciousness even without any exogenous substances and then yeah, if they don't have somebody to help facilitate and guide and integrate the experience or uh, carry them through it they yeah they come to these conclusions and then when it's challenged they kind of have to double down on well you know i've got these two opportunities i can believe that i'm way off base and i did these horrible things or I can double down on this idea that like I've received the second comforter and I'm this enlightened being. And so it's been interesting to, mm. again, view these things in a broader context. And I think that's where I struggle with the traditional anti-Mormon or CES letter response, which is more just like, this is all fake. It's all fraud. It's all made up. You know, Joseph Smith was pulling a fast one because I don't think, I don't think the evidence is there for that. There are definitely aspects um, that were fraudulent and where that belief ended and the fraud began um, is interesting. And I don't know when, if we'll exactly get to figure that out. And I think it probably changes from one, you know, one moment to the other because people are complex individuals that you second guess and doubt yourself, but I think it's, more and more evident that he was experiencing things and whether it was psychedelics whether it was his early childhood traumas i mean having unanesthetized surgery i've got a book uh called the sword of laban 
Joseph Smith Jr. and the Dissociated Mind, which is written by yeah, great a physician. Yeah. Okay, I haven't read it yet, but you know, I think that um, yeah, this idea of a pious fraud where he believed a lot of this stuff and justified some fraud to try to bring people to what I think were real mystical experiences he was having, combined with you know his own traumas and insecurities and uh, shadow um, is the most likely ex explanation of it all. Yeah. So a couple of things there. One is that you said like you were validating the Dable's experiences. And I, and I know what you meant. I just want to kind of clarify for the audience. You would agree they experienced something. They said, look, I, I had an experience. The experience mm -hmm. is real. The how What we do with the experience to interpret it. So for instance, uh, when I prayed about the Book of Mormon, um, as a 17-year-old kid taking the discussions from the missionaries, I had a mystical experience. And at the time, I interpreted that to mean that the church was true. And then later on, uh, I run into problems with that experience in terms of the data that I was discovering contradicted the uh, degree to which the answer was given in that mystical experience. And I had to change how I interpreted it. And so we're not saying that the Daybells were right, that their experience was legitimate in terms of its meaning. Rather, they experienced something, they applied an interpretation to it, and that's where they got off track is by interpreting it in a way that wasn't conducive to a healthy behavior, and nor was there an outside force of goodness telling them to do the things that they did. Hmm. So I want to, if you don't mind, just because you brought it up, I think this reality thing would be a fun place to spend a little bit of time. Because it's a place where yep. I have a little bit of uh, awareness. A, a person in the Exmo community, everybody would recognize this person's name. A person in the Exmo community reached out to me and said, hey, Bill, I'm, I've gone down this rabbit hole. And I'm just curious if you would mind putting a second set of eyes on it and let me know if I'm off track or if there's something to this. And what they sent me was this whole Donald Hoffman stuff. And so they sent me videos and I, I went down the rabbit hole uh, and watched a bunch of it. And Hoffman goes a little further than other folks in the space, but here's what I'll say about it. Quantum mechanics, the foremost edge of quantum mechanics, those scientists who are reputable, and you can do a Google search, by the way, folks, and you can come up with lots of articles that have been written that are saying this at this moment. Uh, those scientists on the very edge of quantum mechanics, when we started off in this idea of particles and waves, and if you looked at it, if there was an observer it behaved differently than if there wasn't an observer. And that sounds weird on its surface, but there's some truth to that. And so Hoffman uh, goes over the data and shows that, as you pointed out, we human beings have been evolved to take in the stimuli around us and to have our eyes tell us what that is. And as you pointed out, every species of animal does that different. We all sort of intuitively understand that. And we've learned it, right? Like dogs and cats, cats see in certain colors, dogs see in black and white. We have these narratives that we, we say. But as you point out, inevitably, trees perceive reality different than us. Mushrooms in the mycelium underneath the ground perceive reality different than us. And it makes so much sense because we also all intuitively understand that when we were on the African Serengeti 200,000 years ago and something on the edges of the, of the trees moved or we saw what we thought were two eyes, 
our brains are designed to automatically jump to the worst case scenario. Because if you think you see a lion and it wasn't, you're safe. If you don't think you see a lion and there is, you're dead. And so we human beings have been trained over hundreds of thousands of years that our brains in the, uh, in the parts that are in that fight, flight, fear, freeze, uh, part of our heads, we are going to automatically jump to the sky is falling. Things are bad. Let's take care of it quickly. Hurry up, survive. And hence, any data or stimuli coming into our senses that is not necessary to survival, there are certain pieces of that data that over hundreds of thousands of years, we would have just just cast off. We just Our brains would not be trained to pick that up to the point where they say we pick up like, 3% of the electromagnetic field, and there are other species that pick up more. Uh, when I think of like snakes and certain uh, reptiles that eat animals, they have heat sensors. So they can sort of see with like uh, infrared goggles on where you see like black or gray, but then you see the heat source of an animal up in the tree. And they have that cool ability, which gives them such a cool advantage to, to find uh, the next meal. And so we sort of get, we humans aren't quite grasping reality and it's, you know, full thing, but we don't think so in our, you know, in our present moment, as we're looking around the world, we're like, oh no, no, I see everything. Look at, I see this office and I see the shades and I've got the art on the walls and everything has got its structure. And if I pull my desk and push my desk, I can tell it's a solid thing. But going back to the quantum mechanics in terms of particles and waves, I had a friend uh, who reached out to me a few years ago and he was in the middle of just a horrible rabbit hole where he wanted to figure out if we were in a simulation or not. And uh, he, he got to the point where he had convinced himself that we were, and he reaches out to me and goes, Bill, I'm going crazy. I don't know what to do. I think we're in a simulation. And I told my friend, I said, I said, whether we're in a simulation or not, what are you going to do today? Mm -hmm. And he, and he said, I'm just going to do whatever I was going to do anyway. Like I said, well then perfect. Don't stress over it. Whether you're in a simulation or not, it doesn't matter. But I'll say this about simulations. If we're in a simulation, they've argued that uh, to save on the CPU usage, right? The things outside of any one of us awareness would only render in if there's an observer. So this idea that sim, you know, anything computer, take a video game. I play PUBG. Uh, you drop it in an airplane, you grab your guns, and you go shoot everybody else. Kind of like Hunger Games, but uh, a fun little video game I play. And only when I get closer to things do things start to render in, because that saves a ton of CPU usage, rather than having uh, to have everything always be there all the time. Well, strangely enough, our reality works the same way. In On the edge of quantum mechanics, we're having to recognize that the environment is different if there's an observer versus if there isn't. It works by the same rule, at least to some extent, mm -hmm. as video games do, which if we're going to go off into, into the unknown here and start speculating about ideas, it would be reasonable to say on some level, our reality works in the same way that a video game does, at least in some places on some small parts. And that doesn't make any sense to the rational, uh, logical human being. But that's what quantum mechanics is telling us. And Hoffman, you pointed out Donald Hoffman in the outline, 
Hoffman makes the argument that time and space are not fundamental, that consciousness seems to have come before time and space, and that uh, this reality is only understood through our eyes, which act, as you pointed out earlier, as a VR headset. And if you sit with that idea long enough and play with it, you realize that there may be a completely different world out there than what we wake up to every day and, and think is in front of our eyes. Mm. Yeah. I, um, I want to, before we get to that, I think some, sorry, no, no, I think that's good to kind of lay the framework from this. Cause we're so, we're so involved in the experience that we often don't, take a look back. And I think this, you know, meditation, non-duality, um, it is helpful to you know, kind of throw out everything that you thought you knew. It's as though we've been, you know, standing a foot away from a big screen TV our whole life, looking at the content, you know, whatever show is watching and we're so engrossed in it. And then some, somebody asks us to take a few feet back and see that it's on a screen and, um, and it's not that what we've been seeing isn't real. It's just, it's a different kind of real than we thought. And it's not that now we just focus on the fact that it's a screen and now whatever's on the screen is meaningless. It's just contextualizing what we've been experiencing in a more meta way. Um, I think this there's a hermetic principle, um, hermetic law, uh, hermeticism is a, one of these esoteric traditions um, the law of correspondence as above, so below just this basic idea that the universe is essentially a, a fractal and we can understand different aspects of the universe universe by seeing principles that play out. Um, and Benoit Mandelbrot, who's did a lot of work in fractals says that a fractal is a way of seeing infinity. So we've been traditionally used to understanding reality. Like we're trying to understand this big picture of reality. We've been copying it pixel by pixel. Um, but eventually we try to zoom in and we see that we, you know, it doesn't look like what we thought instead of viewing it that way, we realizing that we need to realize that, you know, our words, our language, we're thinking and talking and discussing in made up constructs, yeah. things that we yeah. made up, you know, we, we, experience an apple and we've decided that we're all going to call it an apple and in no way does that uh encapsulate the whole mm. experience of an apple but you know that's our quick and dirty way um and it's it's kind of humorous to think about this idea of god this ineffable all-powerful all-seeing thing and you hear people arguing about whether there's a god or not i mean we're trying we're assuming that those three letters that the one person uses are interpreted the same way as the other, or that we could even define something ineffable within something that we've made. Um, so this idea of myths and, and constructs, Alan Watts says, a myth is an image in terms of which we try to make sense of the world. We traditionally think of myths as like not true. Um, but he's saying, you know, these are just, these are just approximations, ways that we're trying to understand something that ultimately cannot be described in language but we're creating some model that help us understand it. He also says, 
Idolatry is not the use of images, but confusing them with what they represent. And in this respect, mental images and lofty abstractions can be more insidious than bronze idols. And so, you know, this law, Ten Commandment of not making false idols, you know, the very idea uh, that we can understand the God, the universe, whatever, um, he's saying is an idol and a more insidious idol because you can you can tear down physical idols, but this concept. And I think one, again, construct, one way of interpreting reality uh, is this idea of photogrammetry, which is taking all these two-dimensional photos and stitching it together to create a three-dimensional object. So, you know, there's something that's at a higher level than we can understand in our normal consciousness. And by going around this three-dimensional object, you're just, you can only take photos. Every photo is valid. It is a reflection of this thing, but it's a simplification. And any one in particular does not explain the whole thing. There are certain views of this object that are much more useful and, and you can understand a lot more about it. And then there's other views that really can trip you up because it looks very different than what the three-dimensional object. And so it coming to truth, big T truth, which we can never, we're never going to be able to explain mm -hmm. in language we can experience um, is, is the summation of all the individual two-dimensional pictures and trying to having the ability to, to access all of those different views and trying to triangulate what it is. Um, and then this idea of science versus spirituality. So I just read Sapiens. You mentioned it with your, uh, in your love that book. Yeah. Interview with um, Jacob Hansen. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really good, but I think it's it also has a lot of blind spots in the fact that it describes all of humanity and doesn't really incorporate psychedelics at all. And so, which, you know, rather than religion, just being a myth, he kind of presents it as a, a myth that we've used that are, is useful to organize reality. I mean, it's a completely different narrative. If there is this state of consciousness, which is achievable through many different modalities and is a similar experience, regardless of culture and time in history. Um, and, I think there's a lot of evidence that religion is actually us trying to explain that and convert that down to the two-dimensional. And I think that creates a whole different narrative um, than just religion being a tool. Um, and then also this, this idea of materialism versus idealism. Um, he presents things in a very materialist way, which uh, this idea that matter is a fundamental being, uh, substance of the universe, um, which is how science is generally operated and it's useful um, but idealism is, is kind of this bigger picture. Um, but he has a quote that I really liked. He said, uh, he's quoting Francis Bacon, um, and he said, which, who said, knowledge is power. The real test of knowledge is not whether it is true, but whether it empowers us. Scientists usually assume that no theory is 100% correct. Truth, consequently, is a poor test for knowledge. The real test is utility. A theory that enables us to do new things constitutes knowledge. So in, he's basically saying, you know, we're never actually going to, get big T truth and science doesn't claim to do that. If, um, the theories, the laws of, of science, it's basically saying like, this isn't true. This is just a pretty good framework for 
interpreting and predicting what we see. Like Newtonian physics isn't true in the sense that it's some fundamental law. It's just an approximation of how to um, predict where large masses, um, how they operate. And then once we pushed that to the limits and found that it broke down, it's not that we disproved Newton. It's just we realized that that was a an algorithm that worked within a certain framework. And then there is actually a meta algorithm that both explains that and also needs to be used at the edges. Whereas religion has had the um, unfortunate characteristic that it often claims divine authority. So like, no, this is truth and it's been very inflexible. Uh, And so they're both trying to do the same thing. Um, And in science, we, we allow things to, you know, we allow things to evolve and understand that things are just approximations or constructs, but in religion, because of the claims, you know, we don't necessarily, uh, it hasn't deserved that, um, uh, respect, I guess, or that, uh, viewpoint. But I, I think in spirituality, which I would view as more less dogmatic and more in line with just this overall view of, you know, let's, create myths that help us understand reality. And I think you can now merge the two. Um, But ultimately truth is, you know, whether a framework is internally consistent and I think we should judge it by whether it can explain, you know, all the phenomenon that we are experiencing and whether it's useful, whether it empowers us rather than trying to figure out if something is true or not, because really what is truth? I think it's, it's those measures is, is it useful? Does it empower us? Does it explain as much as possible? And then we should be willing to throw out anything and update anything as soon as we realize there's something better um, or the limits of once we realize the limits of that framework. Yeah. You can see the detriment that having authoritative voices that, essentially lay out absolutes and those absolutes really can't be questioned and that we really do need the ability in real time to discard bad ideas. And, uh, you, you know, you hit on this idea that all of these cultures across time and space, a, a great book, by the way, uh, sex at dawn by Christopher Ryan and Cecilia Jeff, a completely different topic. But one of the things that's interesting about the book is that, you know, you grow up in the Western world in the United States of America and you have a certain perception of, uh, marriage relationships and a certain perception of sexuality. And what the book tells you is if we go back in time, it has been done a million different ways. And not only that, if we go across the, uh, breadth and space of the modern moment across cultures, it's been done a thousand different ways. And going back to the medicine tools, um, every, again, go back to these ancient cultures. It doesn't matter what religion, it doesn't matter if we're talking the Vikings, it doesn't matter if we're talking the, uh, Hindus or the Islamic faith or the Christians, every tradition, uh, the tribes of the Native American tribes of America, uh, various folks in the rainforest uh, that didn't have much interaction with the rest of the world, even as the modern world developed, they all had traditions of shamans or medicine men, rituals that had them taking a substance or smoking something in some way and having this transformational experience, sending someone out on their journey. Um, And we ought to not diminish that because as you're pointing out, religion is kind of one way of doing it, but religion is this vehicle 
that in its healthiest forms is trying to encourage people to have a spiritual experience. And religion often corrupts that. It kind of puts a, a, a name and a label and a definition on it and wants to hold to it rather than encourage people to do their own thing. You also talked about uh, the Francis Bacon quote. It reminds me of when I did ayahuasca the very first night, there is uh, a shaman. He's got two helpers with him. They set up a table. They have perfumes and smokes, and he's blowing tobacco out into the room, and he's got all this ritual that he's doing. And it's and it was so cool. I mean, all of us are sitting here watching this for the first time, and we'd all deconstructed this religion we came from, and we were our we were looking at it with a little bit of distrust and a little bit of awe. And I raised my hand, and before we took the medicine or anything, he's just kind of getting everything ready. In a few more minutes, we're going to take the medicine, we're going to blast off. And he's got all this set up. And I, go, I raised my hand, and he goes, yep, what can I do for you? And I said, I got I to gotta ask, what is all this? Tell me, tell me the meaning of this. And his answer was, I don't know. You figure it out. And it was hilarious to me because I knew what he was doing. He had set the stage so that all of us inside our heads would realize we had entered sacred space that we were about to go on a journey. But that was the only reason. It doesn't have any real meaning. And as you point out, this is all about the meaning we put on things. Uh, we, we, I could pull a dollar out of my pocket. And we go, oh, that's money. Well, no, it's actually a shaving of a tree. And the tree itself is a myth, right? Like it's just this piece of molecules that grew up out of the ground and, uh, and grounds a myth. And, and, and you can do it forever and ever. It's all made up. And so this idea of, what, what meaning we can make of things and how that meaning helps us to not feel chaotic inside and to feel like our life has some sort of purpose and to move in some sort of direction with purpose. You've got to understand at the base level what myths are doing for us. And, and you also need to understand at the base level that all of it is made up. Everything mm -hmm. is myth. And I think the... Yeah, and, and you can extend that to infinity. And that's this idea. And this is another criticism I had of Sapiens is like he talked about like objective reality and then like a subjective or intersubjective reality um, as though there's like a real and a fiction. But and that's where exploration of consciousness, um, Eastern traditions, quantum physics, all are useful because if you really explore the experience that you're having, what you're seeing, feeling, etc., you realize that, or you zoomed closely, zoom in enough on matter, you realize like it is also a myth. It's not that it's not real, but you know, we think we're touching something and we think that is like one physical thing touching another physical thing. Um, but when you zoom in close enough, like nothing's actually physical solid, nothing's actually touching. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's helpful. It's a little disorienting, but it's also helpful to really deconstruct everything that you believe um, and hold it somewhat loosely so that you can try to update things and try to integrate ultimately, yeah, I think the science and spirituality. So you mentioned Donald Hoffman. Have you ever heard of Bernardo Kastrup? No. So Bernardo Kastrup is, um, he's done some interviews with Donald Hoffman. They have a very similar, uh, but different, similar perspective, different approaches. Um, and I think his is really fascinating. Um, I guess first we should talk about idealism versus materialism. 
Um, have you thought about this much or do you have a position aside that you are on? Yeah. So uh, the, probably my weakest area in all of these kinds of conversations, and I think it showed up in my dialogue with Jacob Hansen is I do not have, I have very little, I took a philosophy class in college, but I have very little philosophy grounding. And I also have very little with the connections that philosophy has to science. And so, no, I'm not familiar of these two arenas. I can have a hunch of what they, what the two of them are trying to get at, but I'll let you kind of explain. And if you want, I'll be happy to pick one. Yeah. And I, and I also, it's been interesting for me because I'm, I was not familiar with any of these topics, really philosophy, Eastern tradition, um, consciousness up until like a year and a half ago. And so I'm still trying to catch up with yeah, Jacob Hansen, these other people that have really studied it. Um, but yeah, idealism versus materialism is essentially these two um, philosophies that would fall under monism or this idea that everything is of one you know, re reality. The universe is made up of one substance, the building block. Yeah. Um, so there is like uh, other ideas, uh, but monism I think is the most, I think makes the most sense to try to figure out the building block of one um, material. And, and can I just say, from that. Mm -hmm. yeah, can I just say too, to go along with that, I mean, back up 13.8 billion years ago, and I've said this on numerous podcasts, but you back up 13 point, whatever it was. And there's something that happened. We call it the big bang, but we don't exactly know what it was or how it happened. There's also ideas that this is only one universe and that universe is, expand so far, contract, explode, a new Big Bang happens, and now we're in another one. So there, who knows how long this whole process has been going. But mm -hmm. uh, whatever it was that happened, that creative energy, we're told, science says that whatever that spark was, it expanded from there. And again, it doesn't make any sense to me because matter is neither created nor destroyed. And how could all of this around us be from that moment? But if we take their word for it, that creative energy expanded from that moment forward into what is today an expanding universe that is in size unfathomable. You couldn't fathom a millionth of it. It's unfathomable. Mm -hmm. That creative energy became everything. So it's certainly on a science perspective, this idea that we are all the same thing, that book and me and the tree outside and the dog are all the same thing, all a tiny piece, a tiny cell of some giant, to some extent, living, breathing thing called the universe. Um, anyway, just continue. But yeah. I, I just want to kind of throw out terms that people go like, wow, you know, like that's, that's, yeah, it's a actually, little, it's, you know, explaining it that way, I guess. Anyway, I'll take a little side tangent because yesterday I was thinking about um, if you could hide a collab and, I hadn't looked back at that hymn, you know, since I'd been processing all this stuff, but I looked back and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, I mean, this is really trippy stuff. And I think this is also a pretty good evidence that they were accessing altered states of consciousness. So I'm going to read the first three verses. Um, I don't want to, I want to hear your take on it. If you could hide a collab in the twinkling of an eye and then continue onward with that same speed to fly, do you think that you could ever through all eternity find out the generation where gods began to be or see the grand beginning where space did not extend or view the last creation where gods and matter end. 
He thinks the spirit whispers, no man has found pure space, nor seen the outside curtains where nothing has a place. The works of God continue and worlds and lives abound. Improvement and progression have one eternal round. There is no end to matter. There is no end to space. There is no end to spirit. There is no end to race. Um, I mean, it's very, sounds like the Big Bang. Sounds like a mystical experience. Sounds like transcending time and space. Um, so I thought it was a fascinating. And on top of that, I mean, we're in the moment where science says, look, I, if there are aliens and we need to explain how they got from way, way out there to here, which would be also unfathomable to cross that amount of space in that amount of time. Then we go like, OK, well, how would they do it? Oh, they would manipulate gravity, which would bend time and space on itself. And one could be in one spot in the universe and then magically disappear from there and instantly reappear in some other place. And, and you go like, that's, that's insane. And yet credible, reputable scientists, the accepted scientific view on the front edge of science is that that's how it would work. And that, that while we don't know how to do it, we know that it would take manipulating gravity and that you would fold, the universe would, and again, it doesn't make any sense because in the moment it happens, we would still experience the universe exactly as it is. But for the person manipulating gravity, they would bend time and space on itself and be able to instantly go from one place in the universe to another. That's insanity. But that's the world we live in now as we start to mess with these ideas, which run sort of on the edges of like Newtonian physics and then kind of taking off their own branch, which old science is going to have to catch up. And um, But as you point out, the, the meaning is that the world works the way it does around us. Hence, kids and, and adolescents and students in school need to understand the basic gist of what they see. And yet there's a whole nother gamut of things out there that completely run counter to the ideas we've been given. Hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think once you get into that edge where where you're talking about space travel, aliens, et cetera. But I think that's where to understand it, you have to take the headset off or realize that there is a headset and that actually there, the headset is a representation of some deeper layer of reality. And I think that's where idealism versus materialism um, is helpful. Um, so idealism is the idea that we, that consciousness is the fundamental, everything's made of consciousness. And that matter arises from consciousness. And, you know, if you have any experience with uh, meditation, non-duality, you know, Buddhist or Hindu ideas, um, you explore this. You realize that you close your eyes and you realize that everything you're hearing, feeling, you know, it's arising in this cloud of consciousness. And that actually all you can be sure of is that you're experiencing something that you are experiencing consciousness and that matter sounds, all those are appearing on this TV screen or on this canvas of consciousness. And then you realize that, um, other people are experiencing or that you're experiencing everything else you've experienced. You've only experienced through this modality on this canvas of consciousness. And then I think if you follow this, far enough, you realize that oh, other people, I'm on this canvas of consciousness. I'm just like a little locus of conscious awareness. Other people are their own 
area of conscious awareness all on the same canvas and those can overlap and that's where you start getting into this you know universal consciousness and i think the more metaphysical jungian ideas um but yeah matter we experience but it's actually just a derivative of consciousness you're touching something you're interpreting it as matter but it's actually just consciousness on the on the base level materialism which is yeah. generally where science uh comes from or exists in is you know physical matter is the building block of the universe and everything you you know we can slice things up and then we can understand it if we you know understand the smallest part of it but they're realizing that like you just keep cutting and cutting and cutting and then things are starting to get weird i mean you've got subatomic particles that their constituents way more than the subatomic particle itself and so i think we're eventually being pushed into this uncomfortable realm where and this is what donald hoffman talks about he says like all the physicists all the scientists that are working as though space and time are fundamental truths they've hit a wall and the the newer age of scientists that are like okay i'm just gonna kind of abandon that work beyond it and seek some deeper layer of reality um they're actually continuing to make progress. So consciousness being the, the substance of everything and everything coming from consciousness. So materialism, I guess I should say that materialists generally feel like everything's matter and then consciousness somehow springs forth out of a certain confirmation of matter. So if you, you know, your conscious experience is because all the neurotransmitters, the molecules, et cetera, in your brain are, are positioned in such, in such a way that ultimately you still have to make a leap of faith that somehow then consciousness happens and, and you, it's messier that way. And I think the idea, because they haven't really made any progress on creating consciousness or explaining how that leap happens. And so idealism, I think it's much more elegant and it makes sense. And as weird as it sounds, um, it has a lot more explanatory power. And interestingly enough, all the, you know, not all, but a lot of the fathers of quantum physics were pretty strongly in this camp of idealism consciousness. Essentially, I mean, a good way, and we'll get into this, of viewing idealism is that we are in a, you know, the universe is a mind and we are its dream. We are different parts of this cosmic dream. Um, and it's not that it's real. It's just, it's a different reality than we are used to interpreting it. Um, so yeah. Max Planck, um, he said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything that we talk about, everything that we regard as existing postulates consciousness. He also said, there is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. We must assume that the force, that this force, the existence, um, is the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. So he's talking about, you know, this idea of a universal mind. Albert Einstein says, reality is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. Niels Bohr, when we measure something, we are forcing an undetermined, undefined world to ex assume an experimental value. We are not measuring the world. We are creating it. He also said, everything we call real is made up of things that cannot be regarded as real. Uh, Werner Heisenberg says the atoms or elementary particles themselves are not real. They form a world of potentialities or possibilities rather than one of things of facts. Erwin Schrodinger says quantum physics thus reveals, reveals a basic oneness of the universe. 
And David Bohm says, deep down, the consciousness of mankind is one. There is a virtual certainty that uh, because even in the vacuum, matter is one. If we don't see this, it's because we are blinding ourselves to it. Yeah, here's the thought. So there's something about my consciousness that allows me to think I'm separate from all of it. And part of what causes that is that I am able to get out of a bed in the morning and walk around my house and get in my car and choose where to go. And so everything inside my awareness says that I'm this, this unique thing that is separate from the rest of the world, but that I am a solid constant thing here. And that idea can be played with in so many ways. I mean, um, there's some research out there that shows that all of our organs have to some degree their own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a crazy thought, but if you could picture like a red blood cell inside of you, because we are, we are so small at the macro level, I'm sorry, at the, at the, at the, yeah, the macro level. And we are so big at the micro level and I'll try to share this. So we look out at the universe and we see all the stars and we're told that every star has planets around it. And, and we just can't fathom how far all that goes. And we sense, like, if we look at it that way, we're such a small, <clears throat> small little thing on a small little rock flying at such high speeds out in this big giant universe. But now if we go down to the micro level, if I took a red blood cell of mine, and if I could attribute consciousness to it, how would it see the world, right? Because it has a purpose, it's got its agenda, it's doing its thing. If it had consciousness, it would see itself as separate from the system. It's just a cell. It moves on its own. It's doing its own thing. When you sense that we are just the red blood cell, we're able mm -hmm. to move, we're able to travel, we've got our purpose. Uh, we get bumped into by other things. We get to do the things sometimes that we want to do. You, you start to sense like, oh, like, are we kind of like that? And uh, I, I think, you know, often in this religious realm, we're narrowing down God to all present, all powerful, all knowing. And this creative force that is us, Eckhart Tolle, I've said this in every podcast I do in this space. Uh, we are the universe expressing ourselves as a human for a little while. Mm -hmm. uh, we are the universe. The creative energy that happened 13.8 billion years ago is all powerful. Everything that's been done has been done by it. It is all knowing. Anything that any of us know, anything known by any species of life that's ever lived or on the earth at this moment in the universe in its totality is, is that creative energy. Hence, it is all knowing and it is all present because it is everywhere. And I think the mystics, and again, it gets sabotaged into religion, but the mystics have always sensed that, those three things. And it's why we define God at its basis level that way. And yet Jesus there's multiple references where he essentially says like, you are God, like you're, you know, the voice is inside of you. You're, you're the one. Um, mm -hmm. When you start to grasp the ideas underneath that the mystics within Christianity or other religious traditions are trying to grab at, you can begin to sense that, as you pointed out in the whole emphasis of this podcast is that they're all picking up on some sort of common truth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the, again, these are tough concepts to conceptualize yeah. and that's why this Bernardo Castro, I like how he conceptualized it um, because it leads us into dreams, um, which is actually something that we understand and experience all the time and is a good framework for it. So I asked chat GPT to summarize uh, his 
uh, theory. Chat GPT. Um, it's a brilliant yeah. thing, smarter than all of us. Yeah. And I guess going back to your, yeah, your framework, which is exactly what Donald Hoffman talks about. He breaks everything down to like, okay, consciousness is actually um, all that exists. And he has a very simple def definition for conscious agents. And it's any one conscious agent in conjunction interacting with another conscious agent meets the definition for a conscious agent combined. And that's really what, you know, we talk about consciousness, we talk about whether AI is conscious, um, and we miss the fact that we actually don't have a universal consensus on what consciousness is. And that's kind of important um, because that's all we experience. Um, and my way of conceptualizing it is, I think it's like being in like a security control room that's got all the different screens showing the whole warehouse. When I, and you've just, again, you've been zooming into one screen the whole time. And consciousness, our conscious experience is just one perspective on a, uh, on a large system. And then you realize you can actually switch to, you know, there are other screens happening, other views. And then you can also actually step out and see multiple screens at the same time. Um, I guess another conceptualization would be like some movie with where you've been or video game where you've just been kind of trailing behind the main character the whole time. And then you've been identifying with that because that's all you've seen. But then you realize like, oh, actually, the character's in front of me. I'm not the character. I'm the camera that's viewing the character. And I can actually switch to a different camera view. I can zoom out, um, zoom in. And you, this concept, this idea that we're separate, that we're self or an individual, um, it, it wasn't always that way. I mean, when you're born, you don't identify yourself as separate than anything else. And so it itself is a construct. It's a way that we've, it's a myth that we've bought into because it helps us. It's very helpful to recognize that you have some level of control of yourself that you don't have over your mother or the environment around you. Um, but meditation, exploration of consciousness, whether it's endogenous or ex exogenous, is this exploration of the fact that you can change the camera angles, you can change what you're viewing. And, and I think the best definition of consciousness is, is just a perspective of a larger system or, you know, another, there's this in psychedelics, this um, Aldous Huxley put forth basically the filter theory, which I don't think he was the first, um, but the idea that the brain is a filter of this universal consciousness or, or whatnot, but our brain just filters down. So it's like this database where you're just querying, you know, give me all the results for this, this specific query. Um, so again, your conscious perspective is just a filtered subset of a larger thing and, and you can change that query. Um, so I think those are helpful ways, um, but I'll read this summary of Bernardo Castro and it, he's a double PhD in computer science and I think philosophy. Um, so Bernardo Castro's theory of reality centers on the notion that the fundamental nature of reality is rooted in consciousness. He, pr he proposes that consciousness is not an emergent property of physical matter, but rather the foundation of existence itself. In Castro's view, what we perceive as a physical world is an appearance or manifestation within consciousness. To understand reality, Castro explores the concept of dissociation, particularly as it relates to dissociative identity disorder. 
dissociation or multiple personality disorder. Um, but that's the technical term. Dissociation refers to the fragmentation of consciousness where different aspects of one identity or experience become disconnected or isolated from each other. Kastrup suggests that dissociation can provide insights into the nature of reality by challenging the conventional notion of a unified con continuous self. He proposes that just as individuals with DID experience distinct and relatively autonomous identities within their minds, reality itself might consist of different alters or alter egos or dissociated facets of consciousness. In this framework, each alter represents a distinctive perspective or configuration of consciousness. These alters can be seen as relatively independent entities within the broader fabric of reality. By dissociating, consciousness explores and experiences reality from various vantage points, leading to a rich and diverse array of perspectives. Kastrup argues that dissociation in DID serves as a metaphor for the dissociative nature of reality itself. He suggests that the multiplicity and fragmentation observed in DID reflect a fundamental aspect of consciousness and its relationship to reality. According to Kastrup, reality may be a collection of dissociated alters, each contributing its own unique perspective to the overall tapestry of experience. By studying dissociation, Kastrup aims to challenge the prevailing assumption of a singular coherent reality and encourages a more nuanced understanding of consciousness and its role in shaping our experience of the world. Yeah. You're saying all that. It made me think of this thing. So you're seeing at the bottom of the screen. I don't know if this will end up being audio or video in places, but I'll put it up on the screen and explain. This is a mite that is that we have thousands of them harboring in our skin, right? And from his point of view, whatever that thing is, and, and people can't see it, but it shows an extreme close-up of this really tiny organism that is not perceivable with the naked eye under extreme magnification. And these mites are harboring in our skin all the time. There are thousands of them all over the place. And you don't even know it. You're not aware of it because you only see the universe from, as you point out, your perspective. You don't see it at the macro level, although if you get a telescope out, you can kind of sit with the awe of how small you are. And when you grab a microscope and um, a powerful microscope and start looking at just the human skin, that thing on the screen has no idea it is harboring itself in a human body. To it, its whole universe it sort of understands its landscape, what it needs to do, and it just sees its environment as this is this is my normal environment. It has no clue at macro or micro levels what is going on. And what you're hitting at is maybe we ought to pause for a moment and realize we are as insignificant and practically, really, by the scope of the universe, we are almost the identical size of this thing. Um, does that make sense? Like we're almost the exact yep. same size that this thing is. And our perspective of what is out there and around us is almost certainly as limited to us as the universe is to it. And when we sit with just how small we are, just how insignificant we are, and we're bickering over politics, we're bickering over, um, let me figure out what that is. Give me one second. Sorry. My my three-year-old grandson sets alarms on my iPod. <laughs> and so it, it never has alarms until he gets to it. Sorry about that. <laughs> so insignificant, and we don't even comprehend it. We just think we're such a big deal. We're arguing over politics. We're going to have war. We're going to shoot nuclear bombs. We're going to have genocide. And it's so, we're so small. 
And if we just sit with all the symbiotics, you know, all the synchrony that goes on, like this might on some level is necessary for the universe to work the way it does, just as we are. Man, if we step back and look at things at a macro, micro level, we have a much stronger tendency to be aware of all of it is life on some level. And even that's a myth. And that we ought to be more considerate and aware of all the other life forms that are on this planet and maybe even the universe, but on this planet because we can have an effect here. And I think it really draws us to be much more non-dualistic, non-binary, much more compassionate and inclusive, much more able to see that life is life. And why do we judge that we humans are bigger, better, more important than the cow that we kill to have a hamburger from? Um, there's just so much going on here that we don't even comprehend. And that picture, when I see that picture, every time I go, wow, that is a, that is a complex world that that thing lives in. And, and it, its world is just as complex to it as ours is to us. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you've listened to infants on thrones at all, but he's, he's kind of come into the same space that we're exploring. Um, Yep. Yep. Um, But he, uh, yeah, he talks about, he does a similar breakdown that you did with like the blood cells of yeah. you know, how our, each of our neurons are like conscious agents. Cause you think, you know, our, we view, you know, from a materialist perspective, we view our consciousness as just the summation of all these neurons interconnecting and interacting. Then you zoom out and you realize like, what are we doing with each other? You and me talking cars, roadways, communication, you know, aren't we all neurons? And even in sapiens, he talks about these entities that kind of exist you know, he calls them on a, on a fictional or a mental plane. Um, but I think they're just as real because real it's, uh, foolish. I think to think of like real as being physical and then like mental as not being real, uh, especially when you explore these, yeah, altered states of consciousness and everything's real. It's, it's just a different type of real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then Bernardo Castro also talks about just zooming out and you look at the galaxies and the systems and you know how similar that looks to neurons and whatnot so i think there's all these again each and it, with donald hoffman's framework each each perspective has a yeah consciousness kind of uh, an ego it's a perspective that you can take um but yeah in, in sapiens he talks about like you know the idea of an llc or the idea of um, right society and it's, itself it's real and it's just an idea right yeah and it, and the fact that like you know we as individuals we didn't go through the agricultural revolution because it benefited us it was actually sort of this agenda of humanity as a whole that it served mm-hmm. humanity as a whole better but not us individually so it's you know there is a level of autonomy that the um that humanity has as a entity um so I'm going to go into dreams because I think, you know, this idea of like, we are part of consciousness, we're a dissociated aspect of consciousness um, is again, very different than what we experience and it, you know, our physical world, everything feels so real that that seems like a very odd idea. Um, but dreams, we don't think about dreams often and science doesn't have a very good consensus on what's happening with dreams or why we dream, but they're real. We experience them every night. And if you 
look closely into them, you start to see principles, I think, that illustrate this idea. So um, in dreams, dreams happen during the our, uh, REM cycle, rapid eye movement uh, cycle of sleep. You can have dreams in other cycles, but they're much more simple um, and they're just kind of objects uh, rather than a whole scene. Um, the, during REM sleep, your prefrontal cortex is shut down, which is you know your executive function. Um, but your emotional, motor, memory, and your visual centers are all active. Some of them more sixty uh, percent more active than your awake. So, if we understand that during our waking state, our reality, our experience, it's basically it's just it's consciousness. Reality is consciousness, and it's a show that our brain is putting on based on sensory input that it's bringing in from sight, sound. It's just another screen. Yep. Um, when you're sleeping, your brain's doing the same thing. It's creating a reality show. And it's just that the, the cord that it's taking for all the input to construct the reality, it's cycling from itself. You know, it's plugging it back into the brain rather than plugging it into like a quote unquote external world. And so for all intents and purposes, you are experiencing reality. It is real. Uh, it's just got a different source of mm. the substrate base material you're paralyzed your body does shut down all motor activity except with your um, eyes and i think some muscles in your ears um, so you don't act out all these things um, but you're experiencing reality and then you so you as an as a real world person that typically operates as one consciousness or one ego um, your brain in the dream state is subdividing itself. It's creating a simulation where a lot of the processing power is going to the background, the other characters in your dream. And then just one part of your, your brain power, your consciousness is identifying as the main character in the dream. Um, all the other people that you're seeing, all the background, it is all from the same meta consciousness. Um, but in the normal non-lucid dreaming state, that's bizarre. And it would be crazy to think that you are these other things that exist that, you know, people can tell you jokes, they're funny to you, they surprise you, you're, you know, terrified of other things that you're experiencing, but it's all coming from, you know, there's a, a sub ego, um, like a smaller fractalized version, but it's all part of the same simulation. The same. Isn't that crazy? Like the characters in your dreams have their own consciousness, but you're mm -hmm. the one giving it to them because yep. you can recognize it's not real. You're the one fabricating it. And every, all the characters in your dream have their own agenda. Mm -hmm. It's that's insanity. Yeah. And so, I mean, where it gets, um, it gets weirder too. So this, uh, <laughs> I copied something from, uh, Dogen, uh, Buddhist philosophy from Wikipedia. Uh, on reality and dreams. So according to Dogen teachings, the energy of an individual is essentially without form and free from duality. However, karmic traces contained in the individual's mind stream give rise to two kinds of forms, forms that the individual experiences as his or her body, voice and mind, and forms that the individual experiences as an external environment. Um, what appears as a world of permanent external phenomena is the energy of an individual, him or herself. Um, of the individual, him or herself. There is nothing completely external or separate from the individual. Everything that manifests in the in individual's mind uh, in a field of experience is a continuum. 
And so it, it's talking about that, you know, some forms of Buddhist philosophy were kind of in these stacked dream states where like your consciousness fractalizes down into like a little ego. And then, but all the other things you're experiencing are technically you, they're coming from the same source as you, the little person in your, your dream. Um, but you're some of, you know, your uh, energy is subdivided into things that you do identify as yourself and then things that are your external environment. Um, then, so tie this back into dissociative identity disorder, um, which I had not looked into much until like a year ago, um, but it's a very, again, I think it's a very important way of understanding consciousness. And, you know, you've got an individual who often or maybe always due to trauma has quarantined or compartmentalized parts of their conscious, uh, their mind into different alter egos. And so um, essentially to save the rest of the mind when certain trauma is happening, you know, there's a part of the consciousness that stays at a certain age is a certain identity. And then these people can have multiple different alter egos that some of them are co-conscious. So like when one takes over, there's, I think often a, a main ego, but sometimes those alter egos allow that main ego to kind of view when they're in the driver's seat. Other times it gets shut, shut out and they do not, um, they can't view what's going on. So these are examples of a mind that has separate personalities, individual um, experiences, consciousnesses in that mind. Um, and we intuitively, we intuitively grasp it when we think of like people who have seizures and they, they uh, have a, I don't want to call it a lobotomy, but they essentially mm -hmm. cut the brain in half and uh, that person will be able to function. Their life is better than having constant seizures, but something else happens, which is now it's almost two consciousnesses. And you will have like where one side wants to smoke and the other one wants to slap the hand <laughs> and take it out of the hand and throw it away. Um, there are times where one consciousness has tried to fight the other and, and a hand has tried to punch the person or stop them from doing what they're doing. We, man, when you get to this level, you're, you think the world works a certain way. And again, it just doesn't. And only because it's put together the way it does, or because you see a limited perspective, are you permitted or able to, to sense that the world works in a certain way. But when you disrupt that dreams, the lobotomy thing, seeing macro micro level, sensing that time and space isn't fundamental, you start to sense that the world, you really are only seeing a fleck of what is possible to see or to comprehend. Mm -hmm. So with these uh, alter egos, um, there's some interesting studies that really show how weird this is and how real it is that these are separate consciousnesses. Um, one individual claimed that one of her alter egos was blind, they hook, hooked them up to, I think an EEG. And when that alter ego took over, like the visual cortex, that just wasn't happening. Um, what gets even weirder is there's been studies that where they've, in, uh, pried into, you know, evaluated the dreams of these people with dissociative identity disorder. And this is from one of the studies among 43 patients diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder, 57% indicated that their alter personalities presented as dream characters in their dreams. Um, and sometimes when they would ask the person to recall a dream, 
the alter egos would all recall the same dream from different perspectives uh, in the dream. So again, this is another example of a consciousness, a macro system experiencing itself in yeah. individual. The matrix uh, is glitching all the time, isn't it? Yeah. And one, one of the things that really helped me kind of conceptualize this and this as a framework for reality um, because this, this overlaps with like the Hindu idea that we're, you know, God essentially gets, I'm going to butcher it, but God essentially gets bored, goes to sleep, has a dream. And we're all little aspects of God in the dream, encountering herself and understanding. And then that's the point of this life is to gain this um, coherence, this harmony. By the way, there's part of the Hindu narrative is this idea that, that really we are just got part of God's dream. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are religions that without science, Yep. Without anything near what we can discern today using technology, somehow arrived at that sort of idea long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, I was reading this book on attachment uh, disorders, and there had this really incredible, like 20 or 30 pages where an individual with dissociative identity disorder uh, had transcripts of their therapy where over a several year period, all of those alter egos healed and they joined together into a coherent, cohesive consciousness. And it wasn't that any individual alter ego like disappeared. It's that they healed and they were able to work together um, in harmony. And that's, again, this is the, the this idea, Buddhist, Hindu, um, indigenous cultures of um, enlightenment and uh, meditation and nirvana, et cetera, is that recognizing that we all are um, different aspects of the same consciousness. And then this is what Christ taught too, you know, <laughs> be there for one, um, even as a father and I uh, are one and, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Love God, love your neighbor. Those are the two rules. Well, God is your neighbor, you know, so that's basically one rule, which is just love. And, um, you know, when you, saw other people that were naked, sick, um, uh, in need, like those, that was me, you know, these are, it's all in yeah. kind of in plain sight. Um, and then you look at the atonement too, or this, um, particularly in Mormonism, I think has this idea of the garden of Gethsemane, that it was this experience that he transcended time and space. So he, he felt all suffering, not just human, but all suffering, Felt the experience of everything, all sorrow, pain, joy, death, et cetera, for humans and animals, transcended time and space at one mint. I mean, again, it's in plain sight that this was a mystical, mystical experience. And it wasn't, it wasn't that Christ was doing something that we all need to sign on to. I mean, he was, you know, there's this idea of like the return of Christ in this more new age concept is like, oh, it's just Christ consciousness. You know, Christ isn't going to come back. It's just this idea, this understanding, this experience that we're all interconnectedness uh, or interconnected. And the secular, so I'm an advocate for secular Buddhism. It's something that's had a deep impact in my life the last five years. And there are moments, again, I don't share, my ayahuasca experience might be the one exception, but I've never shared consciousness with anything else that I know of. I, that's mm -hmm. just not reality for me. But I've had these moments where being present, being self-aware that I'm aware, there are things happening in a room and I can lean into 
seeing the other person and really feeling their experience. I like, it makes us more compassionate when we sense I've been like in a bar once and I could just tell this other person was being bumped into in a way that I'd never perceived before. And I was able to like slow the situation down and meet them where they were and have this conversation. where like, I get it. I saw what just happened. And let's talk about that. It makes us better human beings when we can hold space for what other people are experiencing and feeling. And it's mm-hmm. not in this magic way of like, oh no, we had the same brain. We both experienced it th- together. No, it's, it's that you can sort of hold space for what a, might be like to be that person in that experience. And like you said, to the, the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you to sense that they're no, that they are you under a different set of circumstances. They are part of this universe in the same way that you are. And hence, let's do my part in this moment to reduce suffering in the world. And, and I like I would push it further in that. I mean, again, going through this scientific and I think very logical, although not materialist perspective, you know, in some ways they have the same brain because they come from the same brain. Um, and it, this is where like lucid dreaming, I think, again, ties into this idea. So, you know, if we see that dreams are an example of a consciousness subdividing and an experience of like you feeling like you're just a separate individual, but you're part of a macrocosm that is all actually coming from the same source. Um, lucid dreaming is this idea, and I've played around with it a little bit, um, but it's this gaining the awareness while you're in the dream that it's a dream and that it all actually is coming from you. And there's different levels. I mean, there's a, a lot of good scientific work on lucid dreaming. Um, one scientist in particular studied it, and it's fascinating because it's it's been able to be very scientific because they're able to train people who can lucid dream. Once they are aware that they're lucid, they can move their eyes in certain uh, movements, indicating to the outside world that they're uh, lucid dreaming. Mm. And then they can communicate back and forth people on this layer of uh, reality and people in the dream and ask them questions and whatnot. So this has allowed them to get into... MRIs and see what's going on. So when a person gains lucidity, they see that in the brain, the prefrontal cortex now lights up, you know, um, and I think there's some evidence that the amygdala, the limbic system, kind of this fight or flight uh, system starts to, um, which I think is the evolutionarily older part of us, um, quiets down because we realize that there's more, more to this. There's some illusory nature of reality. Um, There's a there's another layer where we don't have to operate um, just from this fight or flight. But there's these different levels of lucid dreaming. The, the, the lowest level being that you're just aware that you're in a dream. But then the more awareness you have and interconnectedness that your perspective, the more you can change actually your perspective from just being that little ego to more of the dream, expanding it to more of the consciousness that is creating the dream think about that there's nothing that there's really nothing that would stop you from in a dream taking the consciousness of another character Mm -hmm. yeah and you can start to control the physical matter you can start to control the other people um and that this is this whole there's this whole um aspect of tibetan buddhism the dream yoga where they train to recognize that they're in the dream and then in the dream, you can actually gain a level of lucidity in which the dream essentially collapses. You have access to your waking memories as an individual who is sleeping. Um, and again, this is, I think, 
it happens in the dream world where there's this metaphysical mind meld, you know, connection to the universal consciousness. Mm. And again, there's, I don't think there's actually really any good argument that this isn't another layer, you know, a fractalized level of that. And so, um, cause we experience again, we experience reality just the same as we're experiencing in a dream, but just on a, a smaller level. And so, I think and reality, it, reality is also sort of the same. And I'm sorry, I keep stopping you, but I want to oh, kind good. of bounce these ideas off. So reality is also the same way in that if you understand it's all myth, it's all made up, you are an actor or actress on a, in a play and you are the star of your own show because your brain has no other ability uh, generally than to take your own perspective. But you really do get to be an actor or actress on, on the stage and not that you have total control but you do get to sort of create whatever story you want. And you can see people do that. Like some people are like, this is what I want to do with my life. And they go do it. And if the more aware that you are, that it's all myth, that, that it's to the point where, again, the other side of the coin of nihilism is absurdism. This is all absurd and you can do whatever you want. If I wanted to, spend my 10,000 hours becoming an expert on Mormonism and make a living doing a podcast on Mormonism, I can do that and did. Mm. Like all of us get to create the life we want. Now there's limitations and some of us have more inherent gifts to do the thing we want to do than others. Some people will have barriers to being able to do things, but I don't believe in the secret, but this is the idea behind the secret um, is that if you think a thought and lean into that thought and start doing things in your life to bring that thought to about, many of us can bring that thing to fruition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, the secret, the new age stuff, once you like ground yourself in the fact that everything's myth and all of truth, it. truth should be examined by how internally consistent it is and how much it empowers you. And the fact that reality is subjective and we're all actually experiencing an inter, I mean, I like how he talked about in sapiens, an intersubjective reality. I mean, that's what these people are saying is that, we are living in an intersubjective reality. We're living in a cosmic dream. And, you know, all, these are all, there's infinite conscious perspectives. There's the perspective of the, the mind that's dreaming. And then there's perspectives of all the individual parts of the dream. Yeah. And yeah, anything that, you know, that we get dismissive of new age secrets, stuff like that, because, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's not logical, but by, by what, um, by what grounds by like materialist grounds by this idea that matter is the fundamental aspect of reality which i think there's actually not um there's not a good case for that anymore i mean it's it's a valid perspective from within that small uh framework but now we're experiencing and moving past that where we have to realize yeah it's newtonian physics and then there's something else that is deeper and more fundamental and this yeah. also and to notice that the only thing that stops you from bringing your dream to pass is either your own reluctance to do so or the rest of the universe trying to bring its dream to pass. Mm -hmm. Those are the only and, things that and, get in the way. And I think this, I mean, this is, you know, Jacob Hansen was like pushing you basically on like, what's the meaning of life? What's the moral, et cetera. I mean, when you view the universe reality as a consciousness as mental i mean the point of this is just like therapy it's having self-love uh coherence making 
updating your internal working models, your the meaning that you've made from your life of like, oh, I'm just a victim, you know, all these things happen to me to like, what can I learn from this? And I'm, I'm so grateful I can see, you know, the changes I've uh, made from it. And so, I mean, the, the point, and this is essentially internal family systems um, therapy, where we're all different parts um, working with each other. And I mean, I think the the mind blowing or the really salient things that come out of this um, are, yeah, the, that there's a oneness of everything, that everything comes from one mind. Um, and again, this is what quantum physics says in a different way. And once, once everything is one, there's no other. And this means a couple of things. One, everything is meaningless because ha something having meaning means that it has to come from some outside source, some God, some other rules. Um, and have you, have you watched uh, everything everywhere all at once? Um, yes, this is the, uh, I forget, I don't know her name, Recent. but it's an Asian woman and yeah. she is stuck. She, she sort of can transport through different mm -hmm. parallel universes sort of. And, um, yes, I've seen it. Yeah, really like, I mean, it really goes into nihilism, like nothing, everything's meaningless. But then the other side, once you break through that, you realize that everything's meaningless, which is this beautiful blank slate that you create. We as a universe, um, as the cosmos, we create the meaning and we're all fractalized and we can connect with the more we are connected with um, this consciousness, the more lucid we are in the dream, you know, would you rather have, would you rather be in a uh, situation where meaning comes from some outside God, you have to live by some other rules or be in charge of creating um, the meaning. And then once you're in charge, just do what makes you happy and content and- And doesn't I mean, hurt others. That, right, and because you are others. And so like that is the goal is, is this cosmic therapy essentially. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, this oneness, once you have this oneness, it changes good and evil to this like positive and negative polarity, light and darkness, yeah. where the, the goal isn't, there's no other place to condemn people to. There's no hell to cast people out to um, because it's all part of you if you define yourself as, you know, have a broader definition of yourself, which I think is the, the goal of enlightenment and meditation and raising awareness. And so just like in therapy, it doesn't really work if you go in and you have these parts of yourself that you hate and like, oh, you know, the shame and this guilt. I mean, the way to heal in therapy is to understand those parts, hold those parts um, and integrate them in. Like, hey, I understand, you know, these desires that I have or, you know, that I um, this is an interesting part with the, the Lori Vallow thing that as I followed it, I saw Again, that she had these, you know, delusions. Um, and then I, I picked up, you know, being a parent is tough. And it seemed like she had, you know, a very difficult situation, wasn't happy, had these kids. Um, and in Mormonism, I think on many levels, you know, sexuality, parenting, you know, these gender roles, um, there's so much expectation and so much guilt and shame for like, not maybe fitting into it or saying that like, Hey, this is hard. You know, I struggle with this, that instead of accepting that and coming to terms with it, you know, people are killing their spouses or they're like going further into these delusions that 
um, yeah, that kids are possessed with things. So, I mean, I think that, again, this, the point is to integrate in the darkness, you know, do the shadow work. And it, it's a very different perspective on life when you see other people and you can't call them evil. You have to understand where they came from, why what they're doing is unhealthy and protect yourself and protect other people, but humanize them and recognize that they're uh, an unhealthy, wounded part of a bigger system. No, totally. Um, we just started a new TV show, Succession, and I've watched shows like Ozark or Breaking Bad. And you begin to realize when you watch a really well-written TV show that it's going into kind of the human, the humanity of, of life, you sense that really every other human being is you under a different set of circumstances. And it does allow you to have more compassion. And, you know, I get criticism from the believing side for this, but I don't believe in free will. But I do believe like you and I are having this conversation and you're sharing ideas that came into your consciousness. And now they're being brought into mine where I didn't have them. And now I get to go forward and have my dream be different than it would have been if you and I had never had this conversation. But the idea that there isn't free will, the idea that lots of our predispositions, let me say it differently, that a lot of our outward unhealthy behaviors, especially when we go to the extreme even, are genetic or epigenetic or experiential, meaning that what happened before led to this moment and why we did what we did or our biology, our parents, their own traumas. We know from science that uh, when we experience trauma, that that trauma can, in the mother's case, be passed on. So in DNA... Uh, some memory, some echo of that trauma so that the kids born before the trauma and the kids born after the trauma may have lots of similarities. But when it comes to situations that are similar to the trauma itself, they behave very differently. Um, and, yep. and they can note that. And so when you sense like this other human being, serial killers, um, again, I don't mean this lightly. I'm not trying to justify unhealthy behavior. We definitely need to protect. Uh, we need to get justice for victims. And that I would frame that conversation very differently than how the world does, but we need to get justice mm -hmm. for victims and we need to keep unhealthy people at distance from potential future victims. Right? So the, so we do need to put people in jail. I, I don't have a, and they do need to be, uh, they need to be pulled out of society so they can't hurt other people, but pedophiles and serial killers have a predisposition. So I've never planned out how to kill someone. I've never thought about how to do that. I've never wanted mm -hmm. to take another person's life. And there are other people on this planet who can't stop thinking about killing someone. They, it is ingrained in them to the point where they eventually give in and start doing it. And once mm -hmm. you sense like every other human being is doing the best they can, and they really couldn't have made any other decision than they did, you begin to sense like, oh, like maybe how we frame justice and mercy and vindication, and revenge, and all these things need to change. And only by leaning into the the latest data about how we are the way we are can we begin to make changes and do things differently yeah sam harris talks about this stuff a lot um and the, the free will stuff i mean it's a paradox on some sense and it depends again it depends on what perspective you're taking of consciousness you know we're all cells in a cosmic body um at the cell level yeah, we don't really have free will. We're just doing, you know, according to biology and what the body is uh, uh, telling us to do. But on the body level, if you change your awareness and 
see the outer picture, you know, at a higher level of awareness, there is free will, like the body can decide what to do. But then again, if you zoom out, you know, the body, how much free will is there? Because on one degree, it's, yeah, it's genetics and environment is part of the ecosystem. So it's a paradox. We, we both have zero free will and we have in, infinite free will and like it's in holding that paradox. But yeah, this idea of, um, I had read a book that talked about it as situationism or dispositionism is like, when you look at another person, situationists feel that that person acted uh, the way they did because of the situation. And, you know, more commonly it's dispositionism is that person acted because of their disposition, which is, you know, an absurd idea that like Hitler, these serial killers that they're born, you know, from a religious perspective, at what point did they become evil and how is it, when did it become their choice versus the combination of genetics and um, trauma and biology and whatnot. So yeah, I mean, I'm firmly in the um, situationist camp where you can still see what people are doing as unhealthy and harmful and hurtful, um, but then also recognize that if you somehow were transported and lived their life, like I don't would think anybody would, you wouldn't do anything different because you don't, you can't no. control those things. Um, and yeah, I think it's helpful to, again, to collapse these paradox and hold them both as like, this is how we protect ourselves. But then we also understand, and it's very easy when somebody does something, um, horrible, and then you find a brain tumor that's pressing on their amygdala. This is one of the examples that, um, Sam Harris uses of somebody who went up into like, a uh, college campus tower and shot all these people. Um, but he had been seeking out help for years before trying to figure out what yeah. was wrong. And then they, yeah. he asked for an autopsy in his letter and then they found a tumor pressing his brain. So like, it's more easy for people to say, Oh, it's not because he was evil it's because of this biologic thing. But then how is that any different than somebody growing up in a childhood abusive, um, yeah. situation? So yeah, it, it is uh, not to go off on a tangent. I'll just say it just because it's interesting. But the irony, the same sort of smart people thinking through these kinds of crazy ideas, both believe perhaps there's no free will. And also the idea that if you stretch your mind, there is science to suggest that there might be parallel universes where you're out there. Everything about the universe is the same, except you're just suddenly making a different mm -hmm. decision. And so um, the same sorts of choices came together that you exist again somewhere else, but that you're not exactly you, you're doing life differently. And those two against each other make no sense to me. And yet it's the same kind of group of people going like, yeah, like, you know, here's free will. And also here's the science behind how another universe could also have the same people, but not exactly the same. And it's mind blowing. All this stuff is, Again, crazy and mm -hmm. absurd. Well, I think, again, that if in idealism, I mean, all these paradoxes are much easier. They're not easy, but they're easier to understand. So this idea of the, the multiverse and the many worlds theory, you know, if you're a materialist, it gets really complicated because every interaction, you have to make room for this other universe that spawns and is stored somewhere in like time and space. Um, but if you're viewing this as like a cosmic dream, yeah, I mean, all the possibilities do exist in the mind. I mean, if you think about your mind, like you can believe anything at any time. So again, they're, they're, they're myths. Um, so real quick, you know, Carl Jung, I'm, I'm not 
an expert in Carl Jung, but I really identify with a lot of his stuff. Um, I think that he goes along with his idea, um, his philosophy of idealism, even though I think he claimed not to be an idealist, but he views this universal unconscious that we have a personal unconscious, but then we also have this universal unconscious or this collective uh, conscious where archetypes come from and that show up in dreams. And that's why these things have meaning beyond cultures. And he also believed in, you know, to some degree, psychic, paranormal phenomenon, astrology, which again, sounds bizarre from a materialist perspective, but if you're in a headset or if you're in a dream um, and everything is a reflection of like the greater consciousness or the, the system, the simulation that's running a headset um, or in Donald Hoffman's um, framework where he shows that, you know, through all of their computer simulations, um, we, the, according to evolution, which he views as just a myth that we would have evolved to only register the things that support fitness. Um, yeah, all these things in the material time and space are reflective of some deeper fundamental reality. And so you start to build a framework where paranormal um, phenomenon, psychic stuff, it doesn't prove it, but you're living in a different um, scenario where there's the framework that there can be some truth to it. And more and more, there's um, you know, scientific experiments that are showing these small effects, you know, psi experiments that are showing small effects to people concentrating on number generators or double slit experiments. Um, or there's Ian Stevenson's work. Um, he's a psychologist at the yeah. Division of Perceptual Studies, um, which has like interviewed, you know, looked at 3,000 cases of these kids remembering past lives and, you know, verifying them some way. Um, again, it's, there's a lot of criticism of these things, but you have to understand that some of that criticism is similar to, I think, people in the church trying to keep their view and not wanting to be open to anything that challenges that. I mean, it's very uncomfortable yeah. for scientific materialism to be open to something that undermines everything that mainstream um, our worldview is built on. Um, and so yeah. not the double all slit things stuff. are true, but yeah. The double slit stuff is this back to this, like particles and waves, right? When there's an observer, if I'm not mistaken, is that what we're talking mm -hmm. about? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they even did this experiment where they move the observer being the camera, right? They move the, whatever the technology is that's picking up on what's going on. They moved it to right after the slits. And mm -hmm. they also found that the moment the particles got through, they went through the way they originally did. But soon as the camera started to pick them up, then it changed. Like, the observer made the difference and it again makes no sense i can't i can't make i can't if you tell me the world operates differently if something is there to watch it then if it's yeah. not and i, I want to read go ahead just that all parts of our rational sense is confounded by that and i want to read something from my paper because this is one of the biggest feedback and just FYI, um, I probably have about a half hour left today. Okay. So we can either split this into two parts or we can pick whatever is most important to you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we won't get too much to the Mormonism tie into this, but um, Great yeah. So this is, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy it. Um, this is the biggest pushback, I think, of anything um, that we've covered 
uh, when I've tried to post about our podcast is there, there's skeptics, materialists are very triggered by quantum physics being used in a discussion with spirituality. Um, I think for a couple of reasons, because people that are in kind of this new age spiritual space, I mean, they're not really coming, they're not coming from a skeptical materialist perspective. And so they, they don't have to go through every logical explanation. They, they're understanding the world in an idealistic perspective and just viewing quantum physics as like, hey, look, the principles that apply here, we can apply them at a, a large scale. Whereas skeptical materialists are like, well, how can you make that jump? You know, and they, they view it as an abuse. Um, and so I've noticed very triggered by this. Um, and I think there's some uh, validity to that. And what I tried to do, um, and I think this is what I bring to the discussion is um, I have a background in science, not in physics, um, but bioinformatics and feel like I understand this enough where I, I try not to make any conclusions that aren't supported by the science, but at least look at these at a very low level and say like, hey, this at least shows us that the universe doesn't operate in the way that we are comfortable thinking. And this does, I think, support idealism. So I'm going to read about the double slip because again, people don't often understand this. And so they can jump to other conclusions, but I think it, I think there are some really important things that mm. um, are, um, that we can find from this. So, um, so let's cover a few concepts in quantum physics, starting with the double slit experiment and the observer effect. This is a classic experiment showing the weirdness of quantum physics. In this experiment, you shoot light or particles at a detector screen or a wall that detects light or particles locked by a wall with two vertical slits. If you were shining a light toward those two slits, the light would travel as a wave and each slit would allow through a pattern of waves, which would then interfere with the waves from the other slit, resulting in a pattern of bands on the detector screen. In other words, the peaks and valleys of the waves from the two different slits would combine at some point and cancel each other at other points, creating an interrupted pattern. If you covered up one slit and instead shot atoms at the wall, you would see a single vertical band showing that the atoms pass through as you would expect a particle to do. However, you, if you uncovered both slits and shot the atoms, you'd end up with a pattern of vertical bands on the screen, showing that the patterns somehow behaved as a wave interacting with each other in an interference pattern. Even odder, if you shoot the atoms one at a time, you get the same pattern of bands. It's as though the atom is interacting with itself, somehow going through both slits simultaneously, interfering with a version of itself going through the other slit, yet later being detected in only one spot on the screen, influenced by that interference. One by one, the atoms strike the screen and result in the same pattern of bands, indicating wave-like behavior. It gets even stranger. If you set up an experiment to monitor which slit the atom goes through, and then rerun the experiment, you no longer get wave-like behavior and instead see just two bands showing that there was no interference and only particle behavior is observed. The atom is no longer going through both slits and interfering with itself, but instead is going through one slit only. Yet as soon as you turn the detector off, the wave-like behavior resumes. Um, and then I say, if you're lost, take a moment and watch this excellent video. So it's much easier to visualize this than read about, which, which is true. Um, in quantum physics, small particles don't exist in an exact location, but instead their position is represented by a wave function or a cloud of probable locations. In essence, the particle exists in all of those locations at the same time, but more so in certain areas which have a higher prob probability. 
The concept of a particle existing in all of those locations at the same time is called the superposition of states. This means that instead of that atom existing in a definitive location on its path toward the screen, it exists in a cloud of probability. There's a certain percent chance of it going through the left slit and a certain percent chance of it going through the right slit. Until we observe the atom and pin it down to a uh, definite location, it exists probabilistically in all of its possible locations at the same time. Once observed, those many different possibilities collapse into just one reality, according to some physicists, who choose to throw out all the other possible states, which were all affecting the experiment until that moment of observation. Other physicists adopt a view that I feel more cohesively integrates with the study of consciousness and idealism, which is that instead of the waveform collapsing, the act of observation merely anchors your perspective to only one of those parallel timelines from that point forward. Integrated with idealism, this means the other timelines still exist in some other aspect of the infinite universal consciousness. This is where the idea of many worlds or the multiverse comes in, a weird idea, but one that many physicists are adamant is the only reasonable explanation for the results seen. In summary, multiple realities exist at the same time, each correlating to a possible path of the atom stacked on top of each other and interacting with each other in a superposition of states. It's essential that these different timelines are stacked on top of each other and interacting because it is only through interference from the superposition of all timelines that you would get the interference patterns. If these alternate realities only existed hypothetically, there would be no interaction and no interference pattern on the detector screen. Then the moment the atom is measured or observed and pinned down to a location, the superposition of timelines ends and you only observe that one reality from that point forward. Before the detector, go ahead. I'm just going to say, it's like, it's like the adage of if a tree falls in the forest, does it, if no one's there to hear it, does it make a noise combined with Schrodinger's cat? Mm-hmm. And you end up with this weird thing where if you don't look at the box, the cat is dead, but the, but every time you look at the box, the cat's alive and you can do the experiment multiple times. And it always turns out that when you're observing, it goes one way. And when you're not, it goes another. And to me, it's insanity. Like we can't even wrap our brains around this. This, mm-hmm. this yeah. is so weird. Yeah, two more paragraphs here. And then I like want to bring it back to idealism because again, I think idealism makes it a little less weird because you're realizing that like your conscious experience, I mean, you're just kind of one camera angle in one perspective in this dream. Um, before the detector is aimed at a slit, this moment of measurement doesn't occur until the very end when the screen detects one atom strike allowing the interference to happen all the way until that point, which over time results in a pattern of interrupted bands. However, when there is a detector aimed at the slits, no wave-like behavior is seen. This is because the multiple timelines are in a superposition only until the moment of observation, which is now um, occurring at the slit. From this point, only one timeline is observed, thus eliminating interference from the superposition of timelines in which the atom passed through the other slit. Therefore, without the interference, you only observe two bands on the detector screen. This phenomenon that observing changes the result of an experiment, and therefore the reality you experience is called the observer effect. The concept of a multiverse where timelines are in superposition until a point in which only one timeline is experienced is bizarre, but much of this bizarreness comes from trying to understand this experiment from the perspective of materialism, which is why we explored consciousness and idealism first. In materialism, the concept of a multiverse sounds absurd. Some physicists reject the idea of a multiverse in favor of a more more convoluted explanation because they don't want to account for how a physical world splits and where these infinitely branches branching other universes exist. It's messy from a materialist perspective. 
where you identify your perspective as an observer, as being separate from the world you observe. But when you try to understand, uh, when you try understanding from idealism and the perspective that we're, what we are experiencing is infinite consci consciousness of which we are a part, rather than an objective physical world, the idea of our experience winding its way through a cosmic choose your own adventure book is a little easier. Overall, I'd suggest the takeaway from the double slit experiment is that there is a relatively simple, undisputed experiment which defies conventional wisdom and to which a seemingly bizarre explanation involving a superposition of timelines appears to be the simplest and most elegant explanation. Reality does not follow the rules you thought it did. Additionally, there is some aspect of reality that is pregnant with different possibilities and our act of inspecting reality draws us into one of those possibilities. The degree to which you can impact this phenomenon and how to do so is a philosophical discussion for another day. Meanwhile, Jacob Hansen is trying to convince me that the collective witness model is the best way to get at truth. So with that said, I, that last paragraph you read, uh, Gabe, help, in layman's terms, describe this, because I can't, and maybe you can't either. Maybe we just have to leave it with these kinds of words that have our brains stretching to even begin to make sense of it. But in layman's terms, is there anything we could say to the audience that would help them grasp what it is rather than what they what it isn't, but which they see? I mean, I think going back to just this idea of, I mean, when we look at dreams, we recognize that reality is you know, we, we experience matter in dreams, we experience physical stuff, but we actually don't experience matter, we experience consciousness. And so it's a way for us to observe that we can, ex you know, the reality we experience um, could possibly, and very likely is, it's a experience of consciousness as part of a, a larger mental system. And that- We're the we red blood cell in something bigger. Yeah. And we can also, through breath work, through fasting, through religious experience, meditation, yeah. psychedelics, you know, people have, and and these experiences have been really impactful throughout all of history, have experienced the ability to change the perspective, you know, from the red blood cell to the body or to another red blood cell. Um, just like in dreams, you can change your consciousness um, that essentially, I think, what I try to do is allow people to realize that, yeah, materialism, it's a framework, it's useful. Um, but when we're dismissing things, which I think is very easy to do once you leave and you deconstruct Mormonism and you're in free fall and you want to hold on to something else, a lot of people switch to the religion of no religion where they're sure that they have all the answers and it's just materialism and whatnot. But there are very scientific um, theories that show that what we think we know, we don't quite know, and that we should be open to things being a bit weirder than we think. And if we're dismissing things, why are we dismissing it if we're dismissing it because of time and space and no, things can't happen across a distance. Um, we see that fundamental aspects of physics don't happen in that way, bounded by time and um, space. And then, and that's where like, I think Mormonism comes in later is that I think Mormonism is this really interesting case study of how there are certain aspects of Mormonism, like the theophanies, the first vision, whether it was an actual experience or a composite of other things, but these things that he's writing in Doctrine and Covenants, where he shows that he's kind of 
experiencing this God that's in above and around everything. It's a different God than Mormonism now believes um, yeah. or the Book of Mormon translation. I mean, there, there is an explanation of how he could um, leave and come back and not have to be prompted at where he is and be speaking in a different um, way than uh, maybe he's educated, which, you know, I think there's a question about that, yeah. but there are explanations that, don't mean that the church is true the way they say it is, but also don't mean that everything is just a fraud. And it right. actually is a that bit is of a pointer towards, something. yeah, there's yeah. some, and it's a combination, you know, with the, the book more, there's a combination of his subconscious, but then there's also this universal unconscious or this interconnectedness that I think explains why all these esoteric um, religions overlap, Gnosticism, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Eleusinian mysteries, you know, there is a lot of overlap and like, it's important to discover why. So we've got, I've got a few minutes left. My, my two senses, by the way, you can do whatever you want, but my two senses, I'd love to do a part two and we can finish the rest of the outline. The conversation to me is just, I, the, I would, when I get together with my friends and we sit around the fire and have a and have an adult conversation. This is the stuff that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I want to I want to throw a question at you. You know, I've I've listened to Hoffman pose the ideas of hey, we're all wearing VR headsets. That consciousness came first. That time and space came after. And time and space isn't fundamental to the universe. But there still seems to be rules. Let me give an example. In a dream, if I I, I have flown in dreams before, I've been able to fly, be a superhero, essentially, right? But in real, in this reality, whatever the rules are, it seems like it's not just I can come up with an idea and be able to do anything. I do bump up against something that has constraints that maybe reality doesn't work the way I thought it did, but it's not a free for all either. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on there are rules and some of these rules maybe are fungible based on an observer but some of these rules seem not fungible. And do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think, I mean, going back to like the dream perspective, so, and this dissociative identity disorder. So in the, in those experiences, different parts of a consciousness um, are interacting in a dream. And like in sapiens, he talks about an intersubjective reality um, where it's something that is a product of, one person's reality and the other person's reality and is dependent on what those both both bring to it. And so in a dream where you have these two alter egos um, that have vastly different perspectives and beliefs, there is some leveraging of, you know, what the reality is that happen is happening is a leveraging of the what the one person believes and what the other person believes, because they're both part of this greater consciousness that is putting on the play. And so there, and that's why these phenomenon are very difficult um, and hand wavy to uh, explore is because you have, you know, there are um, experiments that are showing these things, but it's the reality we experience is a, it's a, an averaging or a leveraging of what, what I expect reality to be, what you expect reality to be. And different things happen in these little containers like you had with ayahuasca versus another container where you're full of skeptical people. And that sounds very hand wavy and weird, but I, mean, no, I love actually, it. So if what... we all, if we all collectively created a new reality in our heads, like we all could just combine together to expect that reality worked a different way. 
this research seems to suggest that maybe it would then do so. Yeah, there's a study, I think it was Stanford had a department that was studying these paranormal or like psi experiments. Um, and it, they had a couple of experiments that were, um, I think random number generators and like metal balls that kind of worked in a random um, way. And they had people just like sit there and watch them and try to uh, influence it. And the results had like a statistically significant effect, but a very small one. Yeah. Um, but then the people in all these yeah, have criticism. And one of the criticism was that if you looked at the results, there was one individual that was responsible for um, a majority of the effect. And that individual was involved in the research. And so they're like, you know, we don't really know how this happened, but you know, it's not double blind, but that actually would be exactly what you'd expect to see in a reality that is a cosmic dream is that the person that yeah. is most in touch and has a greater level of awareness or lucidity and is more connected to the universal conscious um, would be the one that has the bigger influence on the consciousness around us. Um, so it's this, this has so many ramifications. Um, water witchers who, when there's an observer who's going to say like, Hey, prove it and I'll pay you a million dollars. It can't be done. But maybe again, not saying water witching is real, but that this idea behind what we're talking about today leaves room that some things may work when no one's watching other than mm -hmm. the person who can dream it to be true. And then it doesn't work whenever there's an observer. This, yeah, this there's, there's a, um, yeah. I've just recently got into this high strangeness stuff. Not, not much, but this idea of like aliens and all these other beings and, and it's a really good, I read a good paper that was saying like, you know, these, the question isn't, are these things real or not, but it's like, what type of real and in, you know, from one experience to the other. And then even within experiences, these things, sometimes are physical things and then morph into like a mental thing. And I mean, your experience with, you know, experience with altered states of reality, it's not, you know, I, I struggle when people call them hallucinations because like, and essentially all we're experiencing is, is kind of a consensus hallucination. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you look into these um, experiences, it's interesting because it's not just somebody walking out in the woods and seeing something that looks like Sasquatch. They're having all these synchronicities that are happening before the event. And then after the event, and then like Sasquatch is like telepathically talking to them and they have this like feeling of bliss and love. And then the government, I think, was researching Skinwalker Ranch, the Skinwalker Ranch, where a lot of the stuff happened in uh, Utah. And uh, this one podcast, again, I don't know much about this stuff, but it's interesting seeing how this all fits within like religious phenomenon and altered states of consciousness. But these people were, you know, they couldn't document a lot of stuff out there. Um, but then I think when they went back to like Maryland and DC, these different phenomena were following them home. And then people around them um, were also experiencing things. So there is some level of like reality being what we experience and some overlapping of nervous systems and consciousness where we affect others. Yeah. And you can look at it from a materialist perspective of like mirror neurons and co-regulation and how like, I think I'm separate than you. But if you're triggered by something and in, in fight and flight, you know, that affects my nervous system on a subconscious level. So where you yeah. want to draw the line of how you interpret um, is up to you. But I think things are a lot um, squishier than we used to think. This changes entirely. These ideas of like have faith. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, this idea that maybe if you believe in Mormonism or if you believe in astrology or if you believe in tarot cards, that so long as you believe in it, 
with some degree of intensity, it actually does hold up to be true. Hence, if it didn't, you wouldn't believe in it, right? Like, mm -hmm. so you get the results that you need for it to justify the belief in your mind. But on some level, you're exercising faith at some point until the results kind of uh, suggest that such a thing is true. And, and so you can play in this, this mind space. And again, please, folks, hear me. I'm, I just love the conversation. I don't know what I believe in this space. But I do know that some science, as Gabe, as you're pointing out, with like the double slit experiment, things are not as we think they are. Um, it, it opens up kind of a Pandora's box of what world can I create by my own intentional leaning into that? And what kind of world could we all create if we collectively put our intention and lean forward into that? And man, and, and we're only... I don't even think we're a third of the way through this conversation. So yeah, I think, uh, there's a lot of places yeah, the, to go. The, and I think like going into Mormonism, like this makes a lot more sense that how Joseph Smith could actually believe that he was translating a record and that, you know, he likely really thought there were gold plates because he saw them to some degree. I mean, yeah. in D. Michael Quinn's book, he's talking about there's a couple of accounts where he told somebody that there was a frog in with the plates in a stone box that turned into a person. I think he was seeing these things, how he was seeing them, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter so much, you know, psychedelics or just his own predisposition, predisposition. But then at some point he probably came to view these as like, Oh, I'm actually not going to get them in a physical realm. They're some sort of other dimension that they live in, but I can still channel this from this other dimension um, and then probably, you know, made some props that helped other people buy in, or maybe he thought they were like a amulet or something that could help along with this. But I mean, I think it opens up for a much more cohesive narrative that explains how he probably believed a lot of these things and experienced some of these things and groups experienced these things. Um, and this is why Emma actually probably really believed it because she didn't have any other way to explain it too. Yeah. And I would only add again, I'm, this is bumping up against me a little bit. So I am, um, for anybody out there who is just wanting to dismiss this out of hand, you would first need to explain to me rationally particles and waves and double slit experiments in, uh, in these fields of science and quantum mechanics before I will accept from you that we have it all figured out. Um, and until then, I think it is fun and if if we humans are going to continue to progress and become more complex creatures uh, through what is known as the evolutionary process, we're going to need to tinker in this sandbox and begin to let whatever the data comes out in the experiments, we're going to have to begin to start to philosophize around what those rules are and why it works the way it does. And until we do, this opens up a Pandora's box to reality as we perceive it versus whatever the actual rules are of how the universe works being night and day different. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. My friend, uh, if you want, yeah, like we can get together another day. I'd, I'd welcome next Sunday morning, maybe. And, uh, you know, nine o'clock for a couple of hours, have this chat and All see right, if yeah, we can get further into this. Let's find another time to connect. Thanks for having me. I love it. Um, by the way, your followers obviously don't know, who you are and what you're doing. Um, I'm sort of generally known kind of on a larger space, but I'd like to give you a moment for the folks who are listening to this on my end, they're not going to have a clue where to find you. Would you yeah, mind so, just sharing where people can locate more of these conversations from you? Yeah. So um, 
my friend Eldon and I started a podcast, Mormons, Mystics, and Muons, that with the, so it's on Apple and Spotify and also YouTube. Um, yeah, with the overall goal of integrating these things, you know, psychology, um, philosophy, science, um, esoteric traditions, and trying to figure out how, you know, have a, the idea of reality into a more comprehensive narrative, um, kind of continuing on the, the work on the entheogenic origins of Mormonism, psychedelics, but mm. viewing it in a broader context of like states of consciousness, because that's what this research is showing that it's, it's not really what way you get there, but there is a, there are states that can be accessible through different ways. And that, that not only much better explains, I think, Mormonism um, and religion and esoteric traditions um, together, but also reality and um, what the meaning of life is. So yeah, you can find us on that podcast and thanks for joining us. Yeah, folks, if you loved this conversation, by the way, I, I hope that folks who are watching us have this wherever they're watching it will engage. I, we'd love comments, questions, thoughts, uh, this is such a fun sandbox to play in, and we are just on the front end of being able to say anything about it, what it is or what's going on, and um, just I'm, one of the most phenomenal conversations I've been a part of. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, and that's my like goal is um, to put this out there, because I come from a very skeptical, rational, materialist perspective, and then yeah, I have too. some um, mystical experiences endogenously and our, our most recent episode was on this reviewing this study of you know what they consider spontaneous spiritual awakenings or kundalini awakenings um and how they overlap you know they surveyed all these people and how they overlap with psychedelic experiences and um sensory deprivation experiences um and so that kind of forced me to backtrack and figure out well how does this mountain peak integrate with everything i believed um and uh, so that this has been a product of like me putting together and feeling as a very rational, skeptical person that at some point it, it starts to, it gets to the point where you have to be more irrational to dismiss all of this stuff. And so mm. I'm trying to put out a, something that helps people kind of baby step from logic and explore some of these things, but also interested in other people's feedback and what people bring to the table because there's all these different kind of stool legs i think that people are developing in terms of like this book on um dissociation and joseph smith and this work on psychedelics and um work on automatic writing i think it all fits together and um and i think it's fascinating to see where mormonism research goes one more thought is you know as i'm having these conversations with jacob hansen and we started to get into the uh the two terms of logic and reason and how logic tackles things really from one perspective and, and is one thing and reason is tackling something from another perspective. So logic is kind of the flow chart. It doesn't matter whether something in and of itself is absurd. It's, you know, if, if all dogs are aliens and all aliens are from Mars, then all dogs live on Mars, right? Or from Mars. And that's logical. But reasonable is like, what does the data say about what dogs are and whether they actually, this actually holds up as being true but in this arena logic and reason are at odds with each other and we can think of very few places in the world 
in science or in the realities we perceive it, where those two things are butting heads and what what is what is reasonable backed by data science says this is what's happening we can't dispute it it's not logical and what's logical can't exactly have legs under it and i'm i'm just anyway i'm i'm kind of in awe of the conversation we had today and these aren't new things to me but anytime that i'm in this sort of conversation i am uh, uh it, yeah. it is kind of kind of a, a state of wonder of wondering what really is real and what isn't yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it's, you know, we're on the verge of a shift that I think is what happened with Galileo and the, the yeah. model of the, the, you know, we've, we swung very materialist um, that during that time, and it was helpful. But now there is some level of crisis in science that, um, and there are certain people that are proposing a way through it. And Donald Hoffman, I think is really fascinating because he's very scientific but then at the end of his interviews he talks about how hey these things line up with indigenous um spirituality and and he's also he meditates a couple of hours a day too so um and you're seeing that in psychedelic research too like roland griffiths who restarted psychedelic research I and mean, he got into it because he he was about ready to quit science i think he was doing his meditative practice and then he found like hey there's this whole new level of science that incorporates it so do you think we're in a simulation? I mean, to me, that's the but easiest way to explain that. The simulation, I mean, it's a simulation with no creator. Like the simulation, it's the mind. The that mind makes no is a sense. simulation. <laughs> uh, and all of our minds, which is really one mind anyway, works to create it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's infinity um, experiencing itself. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll end on that note. Maybe we'll pick back up here in a, in a week or two and and yeah. dive deeper into this conversation because there's still a lot to say uh, on on things that connect to this that would make for more crazy conversation that's based in uh, data observation. So yeah. Um, thanks. Anyway, thanks for what yeah, you're yeah. doing. I appreciate you know what Same I've to you. to you and you've been instrumental in my journey. Sweet. Love it. Right. Love it. Love it. Have a great day, my friend. You too. Okay. Bye.